Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through A Song of Ice and Fire one chapter week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Bernie Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 73rd episode of the Nauticast entitled Red. Part 1, an analysis of the prologue to A Clash of Kings, in which Old Man Crescent stares down a giant eye of Sauron in the sky, before explaining a bunch of backstory, and wishing he wasn't so damn old. Wait, why did you write that I feel that in these notes here? I, me, I feel that, that I'm old? Are you saying that I'm old? Uh, no, Jeff, I don't, that must have been my cats, they were just walking on the keyboard, and they're just <laughs> learning things every day, man, you just can't stop them. God damn it, Evan. Oh, that's awesome, very, very good. I, I've been owned, pwned. But yes, folks, you may have noticed the part one in Jeff's title there, in an act that will surprise absolutely nobody who's, who's followed us this far. The prologue to A Clash of Kings just proved so full of material that we love to analyze and analyze super deeply, and there's no way we could cover it adequately within the space of one recording session, let alone one episode. So we decided to split things up. We're going to do the, the first half-ish of the chapter up to the introduction of Stannis Baratheon himself. For this week, and then next week, we'll do Red Part 2, covering Stannis' introduction, Melisandre's introduction, and the final showdown between Melisandre and Crescent at the end. We will have foreshadowing and groundwork sections and theory-slash-discussion sections for both episodes, covering different topics that are germane to the two halves of the chapter. But we thought this was the best way to present to you just an incredible piece of work on George's part, something we really love, but is definitely a case of him throwing everything at the wall to see what sticks. How do you think it's you know appropriate that we had to split this one up, given the fact that A Clash of Kings on the meta side of things was originally not intended? by George. In fact, uh, it was, again, as we've said many, many times in the past, the Game of Thrones was supposed to end with the Red Wedding and A Clash of Kings came in as George ended up expanding his work much more quickly and the narrative ended up ballooning out to places that he didn't imagine before. So it makes a lot of meta sense that we are here doing two parts for the prologue for A Clash of Kings. For sure. So uh, like I said, we're going to be covering the first half of this chapter. So the opening with Crescent on Dragonstone, talk a little bit about Clash of Kings as a whole. Uh, the introduction of Shireen and Patchface, the introduction of Davos, everything right before Crescent walks into the room to meet Stannis. And then we'll we'll cut off there and, and see you next week. Absolutely. So, as always, this episode is brought to you by our small council, our Hand of the King, Wolfband, Zach, Grand Maester, Tim Bob, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark N., Lord Travis, Master of Ships and Warden of the Waves, Sir Keith J., Master of Whisperers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Jancy O., Lady Commander of the Night's Watch, Lord Jean, Master of Coin, Archmaester June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Warren of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscombe, Scarlet the Other Red Woman, and Mistress of Whisperers, Lord Baby the Onion Baby, Lord Blackheart the Defiant, Master of Zorse, Lord Micah, Warren of the West, the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the Gym that was Promised, the High Bearded Priest, the Blue Ringed Octoling, Lord Jake, Assistant to the Hand of the King, Lady Zena Valyrian, and our newest member of our small council. Say hello, everyone, to Hedrical, Captain of the Airship arrogance. Welcome, Hedrical. We're really happy to have you here as part of our small council. Thank you very much. Oh, Captain, my captain. Thank you for coming on board. And thank you so much, obviously, to all our counselors. Absolutely. Every single week, it's always a pleasure reading you guys' names. Our spoiler warning, as we say in all episodes, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three duck and egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, a TV show. Anything and everything. So, Lady May, a brand new Sworn Sword patron, sent us a lovely note over Patreon that we wanted to share. She says, Let me preface with saying this may be long, especially for an introvert who would much rather silently support than ever make my voice known, but I felt compelled. You have been warned. I took a fantasy lick class my junior year at college, way back in 2007. A Game of Thrones was one of the books among ten others we read that semester. 
Problem with that, I had two other literature courses that required a book a week in there. The result led me having to utilize Sparknotes quite frequently, and especially with A Game of Thrones. I started my reread two days after Season 8 premiered. I love the lore and theories that A Song of Ice and Fire has sparked. My only regret is that I didn't know about the vast and fantastic community until recently. Also, I had no idea to stan or standing was a thing. Uh, I wish I didn't. I listened to quite a few podcasts that were not for me and became discouraged. I found your podcast around the time I was on John 4. I immediately started listening to all your previous podcasts. Few creators have ever kept me so wholly engaged in the content. I got caught up around John 8, but I couldn't put the book down. I finished reading A Dance with Dragons and immediately picked up the Duncan Egg novellas, and now I'm halfway through Fire and Blood. I cannot thank you both enough for creating such amazing content. I've never subscribed to a creator before. My husband and I are avid, are avid gamers, and we have our favorite streamers. You guys were my first. I love the discussion and the insight you both have. It is refreshing, intelligent, and delivered brilliantly. I cannot wait for Danny 10 and to dive back into a Clash of Kings with you guys and everything after that. As a side note, you both have mentioned Stannis in every single episode since <laughs> the very first episode, and it makes my heart so happy. Well, thank you so much, Lady May, for that, and obviously going to be disappointed in this episode. We don't mention Stannis even once, even <laughs> once as he come up. But seriously, uh, thank you so much. We're glad you've been enjoying our podcast so much. We love it to hear about people who not only get into our podcast, but are reading the books and hearing about other content creators and just, you know, really getting into this community, which, as she says, she hadn't heard about before. We've always said we're standing on the shoulders of giants in terms of all the other great podcasts and content creators who came before us that we draw inspiration from. So uh, thanks so much, Lady May. We uh, hope you love what we have in Clash of Kings. We hope to make you happy. Yeah, that's a great email. Thank you so much. It's uh, It means a lot having you with us, listening along with us, and reading along with us, too. It's, we're all really uh, fortunate that we have a great community with us, and we had really cool that our, our podcast could inspire you to, to read and to enjoy these books in a way that you didn't experience in previous iterations when you're reading them for school. Because who likes to read books for school? Not me. I don't like to read. I don't read. I can't read. <laughs> That's why Jeff, Jeff got all Fs, but he didn't know it because he couldn't read. We just told him they were A's. <laughs> so our uh, question this week comes from Lord Travis, Master of Ships, Warden of the Waves, and Crafter of Excellent Questions, a small council member, who asks, We all agree that the show didn't handle the one true king as well as they could have. But one thing they did well, in my opinion, is build a relationship between Stannis and Shireen that, to my knowledge, doesn't exist in the books. We get no scene of Stannis admonishing Selyse for being harsh to the princess, nor Stannis telling his daughter why he did everything he could to save her life from Grayscale. Those are touching scenes in the show and actually build a heart and soul for his grace. Of course, we all know that part of its inclusion was to make the sacrifice even more tragic. With that being said, do you think we will get interactions between Stannis and Shireen in the books similar to what we got in the show? Further, why do you think George hasn't included them thus far in the series? It's an interesting question. You know, obviously, a lot of the discourse around Stannis revolves around Shireen, the decision to burn Shireen, and thus his relationship with Shireen. But it's not actually one we see dramatized in the book so far, just kind of hinted to and alluded at. So why, why do you think that might be? So it's interesting. I think when we're looking at the relationship between Stannis and Shireen, at the present period, the end of A Dance with Dragons, they don't have much interaction. And I think that George is going to really ramp up those interactions come the Wind's Winter. We saw that at in the Theon sample chapter where Stannis tells Justin Massey, in the event that I die, go and crown my daughter Shireen and let her and have her sit the Iron Throne, which I think is interesting. I think it's supposed to set up events as they start to crescendo and build to the uh, the death and the burning of, of Shireen Baratheon by her father. So – why, why I think it was included in season five, especially, and I think season four, you had season three and season four, you also have it as well. But season five, especially, you have the rela- the interaction between Stannis and Shireen being really, really built up is because for the dramatic purposes of making us like gasp and kind of like hold our hearts as Shireen, as Stannis burns Shireen on the stake. I think that's supposed to horrify us and it's supposed to make us, it's supposed to horrify us even more because they have had this relationship that's been built up over time. So, you know, I've, I've kind of been pondering this back and forth over the past 
couple of years since season five aired. And I do think that Stannis and Shireen are obviously going to reunite at some point in the Winds of Winter. I imagine, depending on where it is, whether it's going to be at Winterfell itself or at the Night Fort or something like that, I, I think we're going to start seeing a lot more Stannis and Shireen interactions. Maybe Stannis realizes that he, like she's his only heir and he starts to like build her up and kind of like tutor her a little bit about the ways of of, of statecraft in the world and the way of how we sh- she should potentially lead and then ultimately building up to him actually burning her. I think that's going to be something that we're going to be seeing a lot more come the winds of winter. I think it hasn't been built up so far in the story because I think George has a lot of plot progression and movements that he needs to get out of the way first in order to clear the path for that. And I think this also gets back to something we've been talking about, which is that kind of threefold revelation. So we get a part of that revelation here in this prologue chapters we're going to be talking about here momentarily with you have Shireen's dreams of, of dragons. And then you have further in Edric Storm, that second kind of punch of Stannis is willing to burn his nephew. Is it possible he could burn his daughter? Yeah, absolutely. And then the third part of the of the revelation is going to be the actual burning, but I think there's going to be a lot more character and character flavored moments going forward in the Winds of Winter, which is going to make that moment very, very poignant in the narrative, the same way that it was extraordinarily poignant in season five of the show. The central image, the central metaphor of Stannis' story is the fiery heart, the heart that's on fire, the heart cast into the flame. That's kind of what we see Stannis' story evolve towards when this, with the story of Proudwing and how he loved Proudwing and defended that Spepper, but eventually turned his back on her. And I think we're going to see the, the kind of the bookend to that theme with, with Shireen. But that only works as a metaphor if you have a heart to cast into the fire in the first place. You have to actually establish that. So I think we are going to see some Stannis-Shireen interactions when we get to the Winds of Winter in the same way we did Season 5. Agre- agreed with you there. I think in terms of why we haven't seen it so far, haven't seen it so far part of it is just the POV problem. There's not really a graceful way to have a moment between Stannis and Shireen, given that neither of them are POVs. And given that Stannis is such an intensely private person about certain squishy emotions, he's not going to display that kind of affection in front of Davos. So the show didn't have that limitation. So they could just stage Stannis-Shireen scenes as they did in season three and again in season five. I think the other reason is because of that adherence to the threefold structure you were talking about, which George is really rigid about when it comes to Stannis. Like, that's the kind of the, mm. the dominant movements of his story. And I think you have that not only building towards the burning of Shireen, but in terms of his relationship to his uh, kinslaying on the whole. You have <laughs> Renly in A Clash of Kings, and of course, we'll have a big debate of whether he consciously gives that order. But I think that's the first part of a pattern that goes on to Edric Storm as the second one, and then Shireen as the third and final stage. And in each one, I think George is trying to focus on that relative. Like in Clash of Kings, he wants to focus on Stannis's relationship to Renly. And in Storm of Swords, he wants to focus on Stannis's relationship to Edric Storm and what he's projecting onto that kid. And I think come the Winds of Winter, it's going to be Stannis's relationship to Shireen, <laughs> and we're going to finally see that culmination. So I think it's a, a fair critique right now to say that those scenes don't exist, and you can maybe imagine a better version of the story in which they do. But I think it's a deliberate choice, and I think if and when we get the Winds of Winter, we'll look back on it, and it will make perfect sense. You talked about the the problem of the POV structure. Well, what did George do in A Dance with Dragons but introduce Melisandre as the point of view for events that are going to go forward? And we know that Davos right now is separated out from Stannis Baratheon. Melisandre, though, is at Castle Black. I have to imagine with 100% degree certainty that Melisandre and Stannis will be reunited. I think that's there where we're going to start seeing those kind of tender Stannis and Shireen moments in the form of Melisandre's point of view. Completely agree. Melisandre is a person in front of whom Stannis might let down his guard because she has wormed his, her way so strongly into his intimacies more than anyone else, including Davos. And I think Melisandre is 
almost 100% certain going to be the POV on the burning of Shireen. So it makes sense for the relationship to be built up in her chapters. And George has said Melisandre is supposed to have quite a few chapters in the Winds of Winter. So there will be room and there will be room for the author to do that. So quickly, before we get to the stops itself, we did do a Patreon revamp. So if you guys are listening to this and you've not been able to check out our Patreon, check it out at patreon.com forward slash notacast ASOAF, where you can ask questions and things like that. But at our new High Lords and Ladies level and above and at our small council level as well, you're welcome to join our little Slack channel where you have the ability to very quickly access us and ask us questions, chat in there with other fan, other fans of A Song of Ice and Fire and other friends we made in the community along the way. We really appreciate you guys there. Um, but yeah, check us out at patreon.com forward slash notacast ASOF and check out our new post talking about all the new benefits and features. And for you guys who are poor fellows, you are now listening to this episode one day in advance, which is really, really cool. So welcome you guys who are listening to it in advance. Absolutely. We're so glad to have extended the early days for you guys. And yeah, by all means, come join us in the Slack. Come join that Patreon tier and hear us talk about who was the best general in the Civil War and whether or not I'm allowed to eat shrimp and all the other wonderful <laughs> topics along with actual A Song of Ice and Fire discussion. We're already having fun there. So check it out at patreon.com forward slash notacast A-S-O-I-A-F. Gosh, I'm, I'm so excited to do this. So here is the synopsis for the Clash of Kings prologue, part one. The comet's tail spread across the dawn, a red slash that bled above the crags of Dragonstone like a wound in the pink and purple sky. The triumphant songs of dragons, the cries for northern independence fade into the ether, and we open back on the lifeless surface of the moon. Or, or Dragonstone, one of the two. It, it's Dragonstone. The red, the red comet under which Danny birthed dragons now flies over the bleak, barren, haunted island of Dragonstone, and our elderly, and our elderly point of view, Maester Crescent. Standing between two 12-foot-tall gargoyles shaped as a hellhound for one and a wyvern for the other, Crescent watches the Red Comet disbelieving the plain omen hovering above him. He is a skeptic. You know, he's a maester chained and bound to the citadel of Old Town, but the color of the Red Comet is the red of blood, of fire, and the setting sun, and it really, really disquiets him. Such folly, he thinks to himself. Talking gargoyles and prophecies in the sky, and am I an old dun man grown giddy as a child again? Crescent wonders if his lifetime of knowledge and wisdom was deserting him, the same as his youth and health. He wonders if he's become superstitious like some sort of peasant. And yet, and yet, the comet flies over Dragonstone, even lighting its fiery plume by day now. But as if the very universe was challenging Crescent's skepticism of omens, a white raven had arrived from the citadel the morning before, the end of summer. The omens were there, but what did they mean? A quiet voice stirs Crescent from his inner reflections. Pylos. He probably hadn't wanted to disturb Crescent from his thoughts. Perhaps he should have. Perhaps he should have shouted given the drivel, quote unquote drivel that is in, Pil in Crescent's mind, that's become his thoughts of late. Pylos announces that they have, that they have visitors. Princess Shireen. Ever correct, Pylos called her princess now as her lord father was a king. King of a smoking rock in the great salt sea. Yet a king nonetheless. Her fool is with her. Crescent turns from his gargoyles and asks for help into his chair, holding the wyvern to steady himself. Pylos leads Crescent into his chambers, and Crescent reflects that he had once been a fast walker, but no more. Maester Crescent was two years shy of 80 years old and was not in the best of health. He had broken his hip two years before, and it had never healed properly. And Pylos, well, he was here to replace Crescent when he died. And Crescent didn't mind that so much. Someone would need to replace him after all. But, you know, He'd be better off if the dying came later rather than sooner. 
Oh, Crescent. Pylos places Crescent at his desk behind his books and papers. Shireen comes in shy with Patchface behind her with a, quote, queer sideways walk. Like, oh my God, never noticed that bit of unsettling detail before, George. Thanks for that. And how else is Patchface described? Oh, very, very well. On his head was a mock helm fashioned from an old tin bucket with a rack of deer antlers strapped to the ground and it hung with the cowbells. With his every lurching step, the bells rang, each with a different voice. Clagadang, bong dong, ring-a-ling, cling-clong-clong. Whew, that's a little eerie. Crescent adopts his best I'm your granddad demeanor with Shireen, asking Pylos who's come to see him. Of course, it's Shireen and Patches. Shireen's blue eyes blink at Crescent. Hers was not a pretty face, alas. The child had her lord father's square jut of a jaw and her mother's unfortunate ears, along with the disfigurement all her own. The legacy of a bout of grayscale that had almost claimed her in the crib. Across half one cheek and well down her neck, her flesh was stiff and dead. The skin cracked and flaking, mottled black and gray, and stony to the touch. Shireen reports that Pylos had said that she might be able to see the white raven, and Crescent agrees. He could never deny her. She'd been denied too often in her time. Her name was Shireen, she would be ten on her next name day, and she was the saddest child that Maester Crescent had ever known. Crescent believes that Shireen's sadness is his shame and part of his failure. He asks Pylos to bring the White Raven down, and Pylos consents, polite yet solemn. If only Pylos had more humor, more life in him. That was what was needed here. Grim places need lightning, not solemnity, and Dragonstone was grim beyond a doubt. A lonely citadel in the wet waste, surrounded by storm and salt, with the smoking shadow of a mountain at its back. But maesters go where they are sent, and so Crescent had gone to Dragonstone with his Lord Stannis twelve years before. But he hadn't loved it, and this wasn't home to him. And lately, lately, his dreams had been troubled, disturbed by visions of the Red Woman. Patchface turns to watch Pylos climbing up the rookery. Under the sea, the birds have scales for feathers. I know, I know. Oh, oh, oh. Hmm. I'm just going to keep with that voice. Hope that doesn't annoy anyone. Perfect. Crescent thinks on Patchface and how he was a sorry, sorry fool. Patchface had lost his sense of humor in the sea. You see, the sea had taken, quote, half his wits and memory. Also, Patchface is obese and soft. Only Shireen laughs at him. She was the only one who cares if Patchface lives or dies. Maester Crescent invites Shireen to sit with him, and then he asks what she's doing up so early. I had bad dreams about the dragons. They were coming to eat me. Oh, is, is that all, Shireen? Just dragons coming to eat you? Wow. Holy shit. Crescent thinks that Shireen has had nightmares all her life, and he tries to reassure her that the dragons can't eat her. They're made of stone, crafted by Valyrians who use Dragonstone and as the westernmost outpost of their freehold empire. The Valyrians also created the castle itself, shaping stones in ways lost to time. Crescent then proceeds to describe how the towers of Dragonstone are shaped to look like dragons to inspire fear, while the crenellations are shaped as dragons too. It's all to inspire fear. Crescent turns to Shireen. So you see, <laughs> there is nothing to fear after all these things are being shaped to inspire fear. Okay. Oh, good. Glad we got that one sorted out, Crescent, and are not misidentifying why Shireen is having dreams of dragons coming to eat her. <laughs> oh, God. But Shireen is unconvinced. Good girl. She asks about the Red Comet and says that Melisandre had told Mama Selyse that the comet represented dragon's breath. Does that mean that the dragons have come to life? The Red Woman. Maester Crescent thought sourly. Ill enough that she fills the head with the mother with her madness. Must she poison the daughter's dreams as well? Crescent responds that this is, you know, just a comet, a star lost to the heavens, never to be seen again when it's gone. I mean, I, I get where Crescent is coming here, but Melisandre isn't wrong either. We'll get to that eventually. But Shireen is perceptive, stating that the white raven from the Citadel means that it's the end of summer. 
Sure enough, Crescent says, figuring each of the medals from his maester's chain around his neck, thinking about how heavy the medal seems. Crescent then states that the conclave met and determined that the longest summer in living memory was coming to an end. Shireen asks if it'll get cold, and Crescent says, yeah, it will, but maybe they'll have a long, warm autumn, lots of harvest. <laughs> okay, I hope so, sure, so. No. Patchface jingles his bells. It is always summer under the sea. The merwives wear nennymones in their hair and weave gowns of silver seaweed. I know, I know. Oh, oh, oh. Shireen giggles, wanting a gown of silver seaweed too, but then Patchface continues. Under the sea, it snows up, and the rain is dry as bone. I know. I know. Oh, oh, oh. When Shireen asks if it will truly snow, Crescent says that it will, but he hopes and prays that it doesn't occur for a long time. Finally, finally, Pylos returns with the white raven to Shireen's cries of delight. The bird spreads its wings, leaping into the air and taking its place on the table beside Crescent. Pylos heads off to fetch Crescent's breakfast, and Shireen is astonished when after Crescent introduces Shireen as Lady Shireen, the bird is able to say, Lady! Lady. Lady? Oh, whatever. Patchface, as always, has some things to say about that. Clever bird, clever man, clever, clever fool. The shadows come to dance, my lord, dance, my lord, dance, my lord. The shadows come to stay, my lord, stay, my lord, stay, my lord. Shireen states that she's scared by Patchface singing that, and she really wants him to stop. Crescent thinks that he might have stopped him once, silencing him forever, and then we're on to a flashback. Back in the day, Lord Stephen Baratheon, that is the father to Robert Stannis and Renly, went to Volantis on behalf of King Aerys II Targaryen to try and find a wife for Prince Rhaegar. During that time in Volantis, Stephen had found Patchface, stating that he was the, quote, best fool about. Nimble, a juggler, riddler, and a magic performer. Patchface also sang in four languages. We have bought his freedom and hope to bring him home with us. Robert will be delighted with him, and perhaps in time, he will even teach Stannis how to laugh. Well, the letter makes Crescent feel sad to think about it, because no one had ever taught Stannis how to laugh, least of all the boy Patchface. A storm had come up on Lord Stephen and his wife's ship and sunk it in shipwreck Bray, as Robert, Stannis, and Crescent watched on in horror from the battlements of Storm's End. Corpses floated into the shores for days afterwards. On the third day, Jesus rose from the dead, and Patchface washed on shore. They thought him a corpse to throw onto the burial wagon, but the boy coughed water and sat up. The man who had found him swore that Patchface was dead when they found him. Is your skin crawling? Because mine definitely is crawling right now. No one had ever explained those two days that fool had been lost in the sea. The fish, fisherfolk liked to say a mermaid had taught him how to breathe water in return for his seed. Patchface himself had said nothing. The witty, clever lad that Lord Stephen had written of never reached Storm's End. The boy they found was someone else, broken in body and mind, hardly capable of speech, much less wit. When Sir Harbert, the former Castellan of Storm's End, had heard of Patchface, he advised Maester Crescent to straight up mercy kill the boy. But Crescent had refused and was able to win that argument. But Crescent, well, he's kind of unsure whether Patchface had taken any joy from what he had done for him. Flashing back to the present, Patchface continues cryptically singing about how the shadows come to dance, my lord, dance, my lord, dance, my lord. The, wave, the white raven repeats the lord refrain, and Crescent sighs that Patchface will sing what he will. Crescent can't control it, and maybe Patchface will remember another song tomorrow. Then Pylos comes through the door and announces that Sir Davos Seaworth arrived back from the Stormlands the night before. He's with the king now, and Crescent gets annoyed that he was not woken to consult with Stannis. The king would have woken him back in the day, but no more. Crescent excuses himself from Shireen and Patchface, but they follow him out anyways until Crescent proves slow and the two blow themselves past him. Castles are not friendly places for the frail, Crescent was reminded as he descended from the turnpike stairs of Sea Dragon Tower. 
Crescent thinks that Stannis would have come at would have come to him at one point in time, but now Crescent resigns himself to going to Stannis. Thankfully, Pylos is around to help Crescent out. They pass windows showing archers practicing, guardsmen walking their rounds, and a 3,000-strong army camped outside the walls of Dragonstone with cook fires adding smoke to the haze. Beyond the army was the navy. Lots and lots of ships sit in port at Dragonstone as Stannis had appropriated – Kind of a nice way of putting it. All the ships sailing into Dragonstone and hadn't allowed any to leave the island for half a year. Pylos and Crescent reach the Stone Drum Tower and Crescent asks that he be allowed to go up alone. Pylos, you know, attempts to offer some ex- some assistance, but Crescent waves him off. Halfway up the tower stairs, Crescent regrets not taking Pylos up on his offer. He takes a breather, which allows the descending Sir Davos Seaworth to enter the scene and enter our hearts. Davos was a slight man, his low birth written plain upon a common face. A well-worn green cloak stained by salt and spray and faded from the sun draped his thin shoulders over brown doublet and breeches that matched brown eyes and hair. Above his neck, a pouch of worn leather hung from a thong. His small beard was well peppered with gray, and he wore a leather glove on his maimed left hand. Crescent greets him, asking when he returned. In the black of morning, my favorite time. Can, can anyone sit there and not absolutely love Father Davos already? I mean, whew, God, love Davos. Well, because this chapter is doing a lot here, like introducing a point of view character here to avoid having to do all that introduction later on in his first point of view chapter, Crescent provides us with the first part of Davos's backstory, talking about how he was the greatest smuggler in Westeros before Stannis knighted him. Crescent asks what happened to the Stormlands, and Davos says that the Stormlords, they ain't going to rise for the rightful king. They don't love Stannis. Nor will they ever, Crescent thinks. He is strong, able, just. I, just beyond the point of wisdom, yet it is not enough. It has never been enough. Crescent asks if Davos spoke to all the lords, and Davos says, well, not exactly. Only a few of them actually heard him out. Most of them refused to treat with the Indian Knight. No, 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 it's not class discrimination, social snobbery, and social snobbery. Um, it's, uh, it's exactly that. All the same, Davos shared a meal with Lord Swan and Penrose. Lord Selwyn Tarth met with Davos at midnight in a grove. Barrington Darien was gone, missing, maybe dead. Yeah, maybe. Lord Karen is with Renly and his son is in the Rainbow Guard. Renly's brand new Kingsguard that wear rainbow-colored cloaks. Loras Tyrell is the LC. It was just the sort of notion that would appeal to Renly Baratheon, a splendid new order of knighthood with gorgeous new raiment to proclaim it. As a young terrorist, you see, Renly loved his bright colors and rich fabrics, running around Storm's End looking, look at me! I'm a dragon! I'm a wizard! I'm the rain god! Guys, 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 what Crescent is trying to say here is that Renly is super fucking vain. Always has been, always will be, but not for long. The bold little boy with wild black hair and laughing eyes was a man grown now. One in twenty, and yet he still played his games. Look at me, I'm the king. Oh, Renly. Renly, dear sweet child, do you know what you're doing and would you care if you did? Is there anyone who cares for him but me? Crescent asks why the lords refuse Stannis, and Davos responds by saying that, well, some of them refused softly, some bluntly, others made excuses, others just lied. In the end, words are just wind. Hmm, what an interesting phrase, George. Wonder if that one is ever going to get repeated ever again. <clears throat> Regardless, Davos ain't about to bring Stannis false hope. He'll give Stannis the truth always. This leads Crescent to recounting some more backstory of Davos and how he sailed into Storm's End while it was under siege, breaking through the Red Wine Cordon and delivering onions and saltfish enough to keep the garrison alive until Ned Stark came down on Storm's End to relieve the siege. And Stannis had rewarded Davos with lands, a knighthood. But those were the rewards. And this is Stannis. So, he also decreed that Davos lose a joint in each of the finger on his left hand to pay for all his years of smuggling. Davos had submitted. 
on the condition that he would accept no punishment from lesser hands. Stannis had used a butcher's cleaver, the better to cut, clean and true. Davos then chose the surname Seaworth thereafter with a black ship on a pale gray field with an onion on its sails as its sigil and banner. And he thanks Stannis for giving him four fewer fingernails to clean because he's a stand-up fucking guy. This guy wouldn't give Stannis false hope. So Crescent says that Stannis can't hope to march on King's Landing despite his dreams of doing so. And Davos agrees. If they go to King's Landing, they're all going to die. But you know his pride. Crescent sighs and says, yeah, okay, but he's off to try and aid Davos' initial foray to convince Stannis of the rightful course of action and begins climbing the stairs again. And that is part one of the Clash of Kings prologue. And, you know, even without he who shall be named and bent the knee to, this is a magical chapter, man. It's it's absurdly good. I mean, like, it's, I feel like it's like the first half of it is a lot of setup and like we're introducing new characters and new subplots and we're also introducing a, a major A plot in the in the story of a Clash of Kings, but it's really, 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 really good. And I, I'll explain a little bit more why I think it's it's so magical in terms of the storytelling devices that George integrates here. But I first want to get your excellent thoughts about how this chapter is the greatest chapter in all of A Song of Ice and Fire. Let me start with a bold statement. Crescent's prologue stands head and shoulders above all the other prologues and every chapter in A Game of Thrones. It's mm. better in terms of structure and emotional character work and imagery and dialogue and the sheer hellfiery atmosphere of it all. It's a chapter in which you can feel the author's growing confidence and excitement in his expanding story come through in every paragraph. George has to both set up an enormous amount of important threads going forward and tell the self-contained story of a sad old man trying to do right by his alienated son before the end, and he pulls off both at once better than most authors could do one at a time. Hmm. We can make a list of all the things he does right here, put them all on like a wheel and spin it, and just talk about whatever topic it lands on for three straight hours. Just three hours on Crescent, three hours on Dragonstone, three hours on Patchface. Obviously, the main attraction is the king himself. But even pushing him to next week, there's still so much to love and discuss here. That's just how good a chapter this is. You're 100% correct, as you always are. Because, I mean, like, what I think what's happened, like, when George got to the end of Game of Thrones, he made this kind of conscious decision to have two separate endings, the political ending, the King of the North, and the magical one, the Music of Dragons, that uh, that you so excellently read at the end of the synopsis from two weeks ago. What I love here, though, is that George says, like, you know, we're not going to separate these things out anymore. George opens Clash by, you know, merging these two, the magical and the political sides. He fuses the real politique and the magic in the prologue. You know, the Iron Throne, the broad military numbers, political theory and alliance and justice, they occupy the same spaces where lore and magic and prophecy and red priestesses. And, and that's really ambitious because he's got a one, introduce a character we've not been properly introduced to, Stannis. Again, Stannis has existed in the margins of a Game of Thrones. He's always the guy that Ned Stark is like, well, I wonder what Stannis is doing on Dragonstone. Stannis held a storm's end. And then you have characters like Tywin being like, I have always felt that Stannis was the greatest danger from the beginning. So we have like we, the contouring of the characters there, but he has to actually bring this full round to actually introduce us to this guy. And it, I'm really excited to get into part two next week we do that. So I'll push that aside for right now. Second thing he does is he has to set up a brand new political A-plot in the narrative. That is namely Stannis's quest and crusade for the Iron Throne. But in doing that, he also introduces Melisandre and R'hllor and a brand new religion that we've never been exposed to. You know, in A Game of Thrones, it's broadly, it's basically the faith of the seven, the old gods, the only two major religions that are introduced there. I mean, we get some references to R'hllor and the Red God and some of Danny's chapters early in a, in, a, in a Game of Thrones, but they really don't exist more than just kind of, you know – 
story periphery setting, kind of scene setting, so to speak. But here, he's bringing this brand new religion into the fore. And we aren't going to talk too much about the religion this week. That's going to be more safe for next week. But it's really, really cool how he does this and makes this religion like alive instantaneously. And then finally in fourth, he sets up a brand new form of magic through Melisandre Vashai. So how does George accomplish these four major things here? Well, he makes this chapter really, really long. It's the second longest chapter in A Song of Ice and Fire with only Elaine's second chapter in A Feast for Crows as a mere three pages longer. The prologue is roughly 3% of the entire page space of all of A Clash of Kings, which is Crazy, crazy. Secondly, George is doing what I'm coining as kind of like Bayou tapestry effect in the narrative. What I mean is that while one plot or character action is established, we have another plot or character action in the background. I think the red comet hovering over Crescent as he talks with Shireen about dragons with Patchface uttering utterly fucked up magical shit around him. I think the introduction of Davos and the word of what the Stormlords are doing set against Crescent's long climb to the Stone Drum Tower, likely symbolizing Stannis's long odds to take the Iron Throne. And then third, it's our point of view. In contrast to Will, Chet, Peyton, Verbeer, Crescent, you know, has this kind of major supporting character dynamic written all over him. You know, he could have been the Catelyn Stark archetype to Rob, advising the king on how to succeed. Instead, he dies and Davos and much later Melisandre end up fulfilling that kind of side character point of view role for the king of Stannis Baratheon. I mean, I feel like the way that we have to like kind of untangle this chapter is to start the kind of 10,000 foot view of what a clash of kings is going to bring us and then kind of bring it down slowly and slowly and slowly until we're at the heart level, the flaming heart level, of course. Yeah, to start by giving a quick overview of book two, we, we won't get bogged down too much in this, of course, because we're going to be talking about all of it at length as we get to the appropriate storylines, but to just give that that 10,000 foot view of the book. A Clash of Kings is, for me, one of the best examples of a highly anticipated sequel managing to outshine its landmark predecessor. It's the Godfather II of high fantasy, a deep, dark well of power and prophecy in which everything gets sadder and scarier and stranger. It's not as tight or as streamlined as A Game of Thrones, but that's due to how enthusiastically George is expanding the saga to include new characters and new settings, and the rewards are well worth the occasional visible seam in the plot construction that we will talk about. The book's title, of course, points to the expansion of the political plot as the War of Five Kings unfolds. Here in Crescent's prologue, we are introduced, at last, as you say after all that build-up, to the court of King Stannis on Dragonstone, a storyline picked up and continued by Davos as a POV. Soon, Sansa and Tyrion will bring us up to speed on the court of King Joffrey. After that, we see the two courts of King Rob, Riverrun via Catelyn, strategizing at the front with her freshly crowned son, and Winterfell via Bran, keeping the home fires lit in the north. From there, George sends Catelyn to King Renly in the Reach, Theon to King Balin on the Iron Islands, Jon on the trail of King Mance beyond the Wall, and of course he checks in, every so often, with the threadbare traveling court of the monarch in exile, Queen Daenerys Targaryen. Meanwhile, Arya Underfoot and her small folk companions trudge through the dust and blood they all leave behind, winding up among the ghostly echoes of a hall too big for any man but the arrogant fools who call themselves kings. Speaking of the Harrenhal curse, though, in the wake of the return of ice at the beginning of A Game of Thrones and fire at its end, there is a magical expansion to match the political one, and you hit the nail on the head. It's, it's the combination of the two that makes this book special. It's the intertwining and synthesis of the political and the magical that forms the backbone of A Clash of Kings. All the intricate Game of Thrones machinations in King's Landing that we see in the Tyrion chapters, they just give way at the climax to this hmm. eruption of alchemical flame at the Battle of Blackwater, lent its otherworldly fury by the rebirth of the dragons. The brothers Baratheon both return home to Storm's End crowned for an iconic debate about the meaning of kingship, the titular clash. And then one sends a sentient shadow assassin birth from his seed and a sorceress's womb to kill the other. <laughs> Arya copes with the horrors of war all around her by whispering names to a shape-shifting assassin who adds up her debt to the god of death. 
The ethical struggles John confronts in his journey into the wild take place against a magical backdrop, from Craster sheltering the Watch while giving his sons to the others, to Corrin Halfhand ordering John to turn his cloak so he can learn what, quote, power the wildlings sought in the Frostfangs. Bran is a prince now, the young wolf's heir in the Stark and Winterfell, presiding over territorial disputes and harvest feasts, but with Jojen Reed's help, his third eye is opening and calling him north to the Three-Eyed Crow. Half a world away, the Targaryen claimant and mother of dragons seeks a shortcut to her father's throne, but almost falls prey in the process to a mummy-slash-vampire cult, pulverizing her brain with pure psychedelic prophecy. And here, on Dragonstone, where her ancestors began their conquest, Stannis Baratheon declares himself the one true king, even as Melisandre of Ashai declares him the one true savior, singing of the end times whilst gods burn. The banners are calling. The winds are rising. A Game of Thrones set the stage brilliantly, but to quote the Sword of the Morning, now it begins. What do you think, sir? Do you think Clash of Kings is a, is a better book than, than book one, or do you think I'm off the rails completely? I'm going to go on a limb here and say that by the end of A Clash of Kings, it may become my second favorite book in the five book series now, because I've just kind of blown away by like the rapid increase in quality that Clash has over, over Game of Thrones. And, and that's not to like say that A Game of Thrones is bad, because it's, it's really, really not. It's, it's an absolute stone cold masterpiece, as we talked about our patron only episode. But like Clash, like it just takes it to a new level. And I think like this prologue just it's so exciting to talk about. I mean, I hope my like voice is not like quivering too too much as I'm as we're getting into this. You, you brought up a great point when when you're talking about like how like the magic is is infused and how it ends up at the kind of alchemical portion at the end of it, where you know wildfire goes off and explodes in such fury because of the birth of the dragons and because dragons are are, are alive in the world once again. That's that's a brilliant point, and I think that's that's really the underlying theme of a clash of kings is that these forces are coming together the politics you know, king's landing is as secular as they get you know you can have the high sept in there but everyone knows he's a fraud <laughs> as as tiri is going to talk about explicitly in his early chapters in a clash of kings but you know there's there's no like real magical element until you get to the end of clash and you have helene talking about well you know is there a dragon about these days because our our spells are so much more stronger than they have been in the past you know that's amazing this is really cool i mean we haven't really done anything to like on the recipe for for wildfire but it's really really getting strong and then when at the end when it all explodes you're like this is where the political the realistic the real politic side of Tyrion and Stannis and Davos and these characters that are focusing on the secular they're coming into they're meeting a a bitter end at some points for at least for Davos's sons anyways four of them anyways that they're really finding that the secular does have a finite limit in the story and having that finite limit it's meeting up against the bitter, brutal edge of the magical, mystical side. And it's really, really well represented here in the Clash of Kings prologue. And I think like it's really, really represented here well, too, by having the point of view character. And the point of view character is Maester Crescent, who is very much that secular figure who is constantly doubting all the signs and the symbols that he sees around him. He's rejecting them. And, you know, at the very end of the chapter, he's rejecting Melisandre, rejecting her powers. He's dying because of the the poison. She's able to withstand poison when he can't. It's, it's brilliant. It's, it's so, so brilliant. And I, I love how Clash opens. Like, it's Oh man, it's 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 so awesome. You can tell how important the dynamic between the secular and the sorceress in the Clash of Kings is to George, because that's the dominant theme of this this opening scene. Our POV Crescent is a maester of the Citadel, chained and sworn, an agent of rationality and skepticism. His order killed the dragons, in all likelihood, stamped down the alchemists, and raised generations to believe that the children of the forest are gone, and the others may have never existed at all. No wonder Stan has turned out an atheist with Crescent raising him. As Marwyn the Mage, Black Sheep Among the Archmaesters puts it, 
The world the Citadel is building has no place in it for sorcery, or prophecy, or glass candles, much less dragons. Right. And, you know, we have that same sort of thing going on in Bran's final chapter in A Game of Thrones, where you have Lewin being like, oh, you know, we're just going to go down the crypts. I will show you that there's no such thing as ghosts down there. I will show you that there's no such thing as magic and prophecy and visions and three-eyed crows and all this sort of stuff. These are these are boyhood fantasies. And look, you know, I myself at one point was a guy that kind of loved the magical side, but I've rejected that because I've gotten my learn on at the Citadel. I've gotten my college degree. I've gotten my postdoctoral fellowship going on there at Old Town. And now I'm a, a maester at Winterfell itself. But then at the very end, as Bran has foretold, has been told by the Three-Eyed Crow, he's staring at the raven that has come to announce the death of Ned Stark. And he's it refers to it as a scorpion made of feathers. He's looking as a scorpion made of feathers after spending the whole of Bran's final chapter denying the magical side. Like even, even after Shaggy Dog savages him after like he said, there's nothing in the dark. And of course, like the monster springs out and grabs him at the end. Um, that's it's, it's so cool. It's so cool. And I have to imagine this prologue chapter in, in some sense, I, I, there's no real confirmation of this from George or anyone like that. Was likely written with some sort of coordination or having some sort of sourcing based off of what off of Brand's seventh chapter. The beginning of Clash of Kings, the end of the prologue chapter, and the end of the last chapter in Clash of Kings, Brand Seven are so similar. You have these bookend images of a skeptical maester dying before an icon of the supernatural. Crescent dies on his knees before Melisandre. Lewin dies in front of the heart tree at Winterfell. But it's a complete inversion in terms of tone. Lewin gets this very kind of dignified, bittersweet death scene where he dies knowing that Bran and Rickon are safe, that they're alive, that they got people looking after them. He gets to go out knowing that, that he's at least done that part of his duty and his life wasn't a total waste. Whereas Crescent dies thinking his life has been a total waste, that he's completely <laughs> failed Stannis, that Renly is doomed, and that his efforts to raise the Baratheon boys after the sea claimed Stefan have just failed completely. And a part of that is the sense that Crescent is not just a man who happens to have this certain worldview, but someone who considers himself to be an agent of that worldview. I am a man who's supposed to spread rationality, not just possess it myself. I'm supposed to act as this anchor for this fearful, superstitious world. And yet, and yet, <laughs> there it is. The comet, the red sword, the bleeding star, the dragon's tail. It hangs in the sky above Dragonstone, staring down, mocking him. Crescent tells himself it's nothing, but neither he nor the gargoyles can break its gaze. This lidless eye, wreathed in flame, is the organizing principle of A Clash of Kings. As the story grows in the telling well beyond the comparatively limited environments of A Game of Thrones, the red comet blazes at the center of it all, like a fiery heart. Its presence provokes in-universe analysis, interpretations, bold declarations of meaning, and just as with our own takes on A Song of Ice and Fire, those reactions might ultimately say more about the observers than they do the phenomenon itself. It is through this lens and these opening chapters of the book that George establishes the themes and tones of each storyline. The comet like binds them all together at the start, and then they flare out like rays of light from the prism. It's it's so cool. You were talking about how you know it provokes in-universe analysis and reactions, almost like George is putting the fandom and people who are reading his books into the story himself. Like, what does the comet mean? Oh, it's obviously going to be Tully Red, Lannister Crimson. It's Brolor's Banner. It's Dragon's Breath, etc. You know, I think. It's interesting when you look at this, at this, at what the meaning of the comet is. You can talk about the objective meaning of it. I think it's more likely to be Daenerys Targaryen related than anything else, if there is an actual sign or symbol behind it. But I do think that's an interesting contrast to something that we see in the Bible, in in the Book of Matthew, and the imagery of the star that leads the wise men to the birth of the Savior and to Jesus. You know that 
it, it doesn't exist though for for these characters in a song of ice and fire it's it's only leading to confusion it's not leading to any answers that you know the wise men at, at some level are seeking an, an answer to questions they've been posing in, in the courts of the eastern kings you know in, in, in the traditional kind of narrative so to speak but you know here it's what what does it actually mean? No one even no one really knows, and I think it's really important that it, there, there's an ambiguous multiple meanings there as opposed to one particular meaning. Although again, like I think it's more that Daenerys is it's more symbolic of Daenerys and the birth of dragons. You know, something I was thinking about, and this is not to spoil too much of our analysis on Melisandre itself. You know, Shireen says that Melisandre has interpreting the comet as dragon's breath, which yes, again, most likely, but she kind of gets the interpretation wrong, and we can kind of infer this from Selyse's later statement about the comet as a. Uh, about the comet as Relore's banner unfolding in the in the sky, so to speak. You know, if we're if that's if she's regurgitating Melisandre's words, which I think she most likely is. The thing about it is that this isn't Stannis's sign; it's it's kind of Danny's sign, and it kind of works to show Melisandre is not quite omniscient, yet not quite wrong either. You know, it's a kind of repeated character beat that we see as late as the Dance of Dragons when Melisandre has her vision of the Grey Girl on a dying horse, and the and the towers collapsing into the sea and the black tide spreading over it. Like, is that is that Eastwatch? Like, um, Eastwatch. Let me think. Well, um, yes, yes, my lord, Eastwatch, Eastwatch by the sea when. You know, most likely, as Emma's written about significant length, that it's not actually at Eastwatch. And I think it's it's really interesting. So, I mean, like, I, I think, like, Melisandre, and we will talk about her again at significant length next week, I promise. But I think Melisandre gets a, an interesting rep in a, in a clash of kings that she seems omniscient. But George is seeding kind of vague clues and ambiguous clues that maybe she isn't quite as omniscient as she presents herself in the court of Stance Baratheon. She's half right, which is much more dangerous than being completely right or completely wrong. You know what I mean? She's just right enough to cause a lot of damage about the stuff she's wrong about. And I think that's you can see that especially when you get to Dance with Dragons when she becomes a POV character. But in terms of this prologue, I think part of why the Red Comet inspires such analyses in universe is not just because people are superstitious or trying to seize it for political advantage, but because the comet genuinely is this weird, creepy phenomenon. It's really big. It's a strange color. It comes at this time of political turmoil and the changing of the seasons. As, as Crescent indicates, and this is kind of, I think, a, a, a winking acknowledgement from George, like he's going overboard with the signs that this is a, a seriously bad omen, that even Crescent is convinced. And I think the, the intense imagery of the Red Comet is establishing something George is working really hard on in this book, which is expanding the color palette and expanding his visual repertoire for this series. You know, I think of a Game of Thrones in terms of visuals. I think of that line from Ned where he thinks of black and white and gray, all the shades of truth. Like, obviously, there's some mm -hmm. big trippy set pieces in a Game of Thrones, especially with Danny's chapters near the end. But I always think about a Game of Thrones. and I think about like Ned in the rain in the streets of King's Landing, thinking about Lyanna or stuck in the black cells or like John at Castle Black, like really like black and white and, and gray are the big colors that kind of leap out to me, leap out of a Game of Thrones to me. When I think of A Clash of Kings, I think of this this rainbow, like this sudden infusion of, of color into this world. And I think it matches the sense of these expanding factions, like they're all different colors of the rainbow that's that's uh, coming out of A Game of Thrones. If you look at Lightbringer or uh, the Rainbow Guard or uh, the, quote, hundred different hues of Karth, Salador San has a ship named Bird of a Thousand Colors. So it's seven colors, a hundred colors, thousand colors, all the colors. All the colors are coming out to play in Clash of Kings. Like, you, you can look at just, like, the range of emotional ends to which green, just to pick one color, is put. You have, like, Renly's armor and Jojen's eyes and, of course, the wildfire and the Blackwater. All different colors of green, all that give you really different feelings that come off of them. Or my, my favorite example, just to pick one small one, is you have the, the bright red shock of Egret's hair, contrasted with the pale blue color of the rose and the story that she tells John. 
That story, the Bale of the Bard story, about a singer running off with a Stark girl and leaving a baby behind, is of course one of the hugest R plus L equals J hints of them all. It's almost literally the song of ice and fire. <laughs> and that hidden truth is brought to life by the colors of the icy blue rose and her red hair kissed by fire. And I know George is invested in that particular contrast because he makes it explicit in the Storm of Swords and John's thoughts when he's considering Stannis' idea of bringing the wildlings through the wall. He thinks to himself, yet when he weighed Egret's red hair against the cold blue eyes of the whites, the choice was easy. Now that's an author using color not just to gild the lily and make the scene prettier, but to directly inform the character conflicts and the themes of the scene. And the richness of this artistry reflects George's increasing confidence in his story and his world. The author is, is, is now painting all the, with all the colors of the rainbow, so to speak. Although, of course, here in this chapter, he's painting primarily in red. Yeah, because this is an ominous sign, you know, as Crescent will later think about it. It's the sign of blood. It's the sign of fire. It's setting sunsets. It's also the uh, color of murder is the way that Crescent also describes the, the red comet too. And it's also the color of one of my favorite characters in all of A Song of Ice and Fire, Melisandre the Shy. The ruby at Melisandre's throat caught the light as she turned her head, and for an instant, it seemed to glow bright as the comet. George makes it explicit, so he's like, guys, pay attention to this comet here, and pay attention to Melisandre's red ruby at her throat. These things are related, if not in actuality, and at least it's the thematic and symbolic importance for the characters in the story. Exactly. Melisandre didn't summon the comet. The comet is not here because of anything Melisandre is doing, although she might tell herself that it is. <laughs> it's just that they feel similar, that they evoke certain emotions in both Crescent and the reader. And part of his changing thought process in this chapter is this feeling that even though he can't rationally explain why the comet and Melisandre linked in his mind, he knows at some level that they are. She, too, is this force of magic that has come to destabilize his hard-won truths, and she, too, will not be denied, no matter how hard Crescent tries to will away his fears. He starts the chapter telling himself the comet doesn't mean anything, he ends the chapters telling himself Melisandre doesn't have any real powers, and he's clearly wrong in both cases. And he's, he's putting up this, this fight because he senses that this is just the beginning, you know what I mean? He senses that both the, the Red Comet and the Red Woman are the tip of the iceberg. They're just the front-facing surface of the age of wonder and terror. And he's not wrong about that, as we see throughout the book with characters like Jojen and Jokin and Quaithe and even Patchface. And same goes for Beric and Thoros in A Storm of Swords. There are all these, these heralds of what's, what's happening to the world. And Melisandre herself may operate as a lone wolf in Westeros, but she embodies this larger dialectical process that we see unfold over the course of the series. So while Crescent does develop like concrete, specific fears about what Melisandre will encourage Stannis to do regarding Renly, his hatred of her is... It's more diffuse than that. It's rooted in the sense that she is the herald of this mortal challenge to the worldview that he's defended his whole long life, that she has come to prove him wrong about everything, if that makes sense. I do wonder if there's a bit of a, a power dynamic at play here as well between Crescent, who has been at Stannis' side for a dozen years, as he talks about before they left Storm's End and was with him at the, the Siege of Storm's End long before that as well. You know, this guy has been with the Baratheon family for years and years and years now. You know, we don't get a sense of how many exact years it is, but it's enough that, you know, Crescent thinks of Stannis as his son and Renly as well as his son too. But that dynamic, that power dynamic, that parental dynamic, you kind of wonder whether Crescent has this fear that Melisandre is stealing his son from him, stealing Stannis away from him. And that's really... Interesting. It makes that it makes the fear and that hatred that Crescent bears for Melisandre much more emotionally poignant in the story. Because instead of him being just like, "Well, she's magic, and I hate her because she's magic," it's more than that. It's more like the the family dynamic there. It's more of 
that that Melisandre is stealing his son away and then as in infecting you know his wife as she says he says later on in the chapter and also too that he, that her what she's saying is also infecting her his granddaughter his granddaughter in the form of of Shireen Baratheon like these are all really powerful motivations for Crescent to genuinely dislike and despise Melisandre because not only does she represent magic she also represents the theft and the loss of family and that's a pretty powerful dynamic to explore in a narrative, in any narrative. I think that's a great point. There is that family dynamic. It's though Stannis has, has brought home a girlfriend that is completely changing his personality and everything he does, and <laughs> Crescent is the dad who doesn't approve for, you know, partially because Crescent is a little racist about Melisandre, as we're going to get into it like <laughs> next week, in, in his, his grandpa kind of way, but also, as you say, for very sympathetic reasons. Like, uh, this chapter is just like so sad and so full of pathos. And a huge part of that is how George uses Crescent's age. Crescent, as, as I think he says, is his late seventies or his eighty, and this makes seventy-eight. 78. Yeah. And this makes him quite a departure from the POVs in A Game of Thrones, of whom Ned was the oldest at only thirty-five. And we really won't see a perspective like this again in the series until Barristan in A Dance with Dragons. There's that great quote, great quote from him: oh, "Where have all the years gone? Of late, whenever he knelt to drink from a still pool, he saw a stranger's face gazing up from the water's depths." When had those crow's feet first appeared around his pale blue eyes? How long ago had his hair turned from snow light into snow? Years ago, old man. Decades. And you can see George using, using Crescent's age in a number of ways. One, like that Barristan quote, is to infuse pathos and to make us just really feel for the guys who say make, him, make us feel for him arguably more than we do the other prologue POVs. There's that great quote, He waved a hand, a feeble gesture of haste from a man no longer capable of hastening. His flesh was wrinkled and spotted, the skin so papery thin that he could see the web of veins and the shape of bones beneath. And how they trembled, these hands of his that had once been so sure and deft. And George also uses Crescent's age to give Stannis a pretext to reject Crescent's advice. That's how Stannis kind of puts it in this chapter. Once you were young, now you are old and sick and need your sleep. And a little later on, you are too ill and too confused to be of use to me, old man. I will not have you kill yourself in my service. And I think George is also using it, and I felt this way really on reread, that it's, it's just evoking this general sense of the old giving way to the new. That, like, Crescent represents this older world that is kind of kind of collapsing. And that fits the arrival of Melisandre's new god. It fits the burning of the Seven that we're going to see in Davos 1. And it fits how he talks about Pylos. Last year when he took ill, the Citadel had sent Pylos out from Old Town, mere days before Lord Stannis had closed the Isle, to help him in his labors, it was said. But Crescent knew the truth. Pylos had come to replace him when he died. He did not mind. Someone must take his place, and sooner than he would like. And I think it's sooner than he would like, not because Crescent is afraid to die more than anyone else is afraid to die, but because of Melisandre, but because he fears he's leaving Stannis alone with no support. And while he's perfectly happy being replaced by Pylos, he's not at all happy being replaced by Melisandre. Exactly. And you have to also compare it to – we have to compare Crescent's sense of, of – Fragility is his elderly nature with how Melisandre is described at the end of the chapter. When Crescent falls down, he, quote, feels strong hands grasping him under his arms and lifting him back to his feet. Thank you, sir, he murmured, turning to see which knight had come to his aid and who is the knight. It ain't a knight. It's Melisandre Shai. Well, she's some sort of knight, as we'll talk about next week. That's why his age matters in terms of his relationship to that eye in the sky. He has that sense he has to save Stannis from the encroaching red menace before it's too late, before he dies. It's just like John Connington with the grayscale, giving him that ticking clock, that sense of urgency of, I need to sit young Griff on the Iron Throne right now because I'm not going to have much time. Crescent feels a lot the same way. And his his sense of unease and horror and everything being a threat is really not helped by his environment at all. 
A lot of this prologue is dedicated to establishing the island fortress of Dragonstone, in our mind's eye, because it is really one of the major settings in the world of Ice and Fire, and it's also one of my favorites. It's just a beautiful, gothic nightmare of a setting. George stages so many dramatic scenes here, both in A Song of Ice and Fire and in the extra material like World of Ice and Fire and Fire and Blood, and he does such a great job in both Clash and Storm of having the castle and the island kind of stand in for Stannis like the the Hmm. Dragonstone is described as solemn and lonely and it's currently like spitting and steaming like the Dragonmont (laughs) is hissing it's like the entire island is like one giant hunched shoulder it's like one giant grinding pair of jaws it is Stannis to a certain extent and I love how George handles the environmental details but what I really want to focus with on Dragonstone uh, for this episode's purposes is comparing it to Winterfell because I think George has deliberately paralleled these two settings and Harrenhal but much more on that later in the Clash of Kings (laughs) Both of these castles, Dragonstone and Winterfell, sit at the crossroads of the political and magical histories of Westeros, as we were talking about. And so they stand in for humanity's drive to attain both kinds of power. Winterfell is both the political heart of the North, embodied by the Winter Town, as we were talking about in A Game of Thrones, Brand 5, and the locus of the First Men relationship to magic, embodied by that all-important Winterfell heart tree that Bran hacks into in A Dance with Dragons. Similarly, Dragonstone is the cradle of Targaryen identity, even more than Valyria at this point, and that identity is caught up in both the crown and the dragons, and how the Targaryens use the dragons to win the crown. And you have other similarities too. You have uh, the fire at the heart of both Dragonstone and Winterfell, you have George's focus on their gargoyles, both both castles. You see him talking about their gargoyles a lot. And you have just the sense that they're looming really large in the early portions of these first two books. Winterfell early on in the Game of Thrones, as we talked about in those early chapters, and Dragonstone now. But despite, the Dragon, despite Dragonstone being the cradle of Targaryen identity, it doesn't belong to the Targaryens anymore when we open in this chapter. It belongs to the Baratheon who ousted them. And he is king, ostensibly. But he rules nothing beyond the island and its uh, pathetic vassals, as Crescent outlines. And similarly, the Starks lose Winterfell in A Clash of Kings and have to go into exile, as the Targaryens did. And and the interloper Theon, he feels the walls closing in, just like Crescent does here. So I think when I'm comparing Dragonstone to Winterfell, it's not the Winterfell of the Starks, where they feel at home and harmonious and everything's where it should be. It's the Winterfell of Theon in A Clash of Kings, when he feels like, oh, this is no longer my home. And everything is just a nightmare. Kristen feels like that, too, when he's talking about how he, he is, is woke, waking from restless dreams in which the Red Woman figured disturbingly. He often did not know where he was. And it's very crucial that it's the dreams of Melisandre that make him feel this way. Because there's just this uneasy sense throughout this chapter that Dragonstone is on Melisandre's side, if that makes sense. <laughs> like, the island feels more like her than it does like Crescent. It feels like this uneasy, ominous red space of magic and power and horror the castle syncs up so perfectly with the comet's atmosphere of portentousness and dread. As you said in your synopsis, Dragonstone feels like the surface of the moon. It doesn't feel like a place where people should live. It's eerie and ominous and alien. On one level, it's over the top, like you couldn't ask for a more perfect Dark Lord setting than an island covered with a volcano and gargoyles. Uh, but on the other hand, it's very spare and even sparse in terms of how it's described. Crescent's description of it makes it, bounce, makes it sound very similar to Pike. Grim, gray, wet rocks where you're lucky just to eke out a living. On the other hand, though, the castle itself on that island is this dazzling legacy of Valyrian architecture in which everything that can be a dragon is a dragon, as Crescent outlines here in Davos will describe in A Storm of Swords. The overall impression you get from Dragonstone is like this power that has just barely been restrained. It's frozen fire, like the dragon glass below the castle. The dragons are restrained, they're not moving, they're not real, for now. But what if they awoke? Davos 1 has that line, heat rose shimmering through the chill air. Behind, the gargoyles and stone dragons on the castle walls seemed blurred. 
as if Davos were seeing them through a veil of tears, or as if the beasts were trembling, stirring. <laughs> and that just speaks to the sense of sickening dread that Dragonstone evokes so well as a setting. And it's what makes Crescent's prologue such a powerful follow-up to and contrast with how the first book ended with A Game of Thrones' Danny Ten and the birth of the dragons. It's, it's so telling and interesting, I think, that after ending the previous book that way with this just miraculous rebirth, George opens the next one on stone dragons waiting to be born. Like the end of book one found Danny transforming dead stone into living dragons, hatching from her metaphorical egg, as we were saying, in the most dramatic possible fashion. So in this chapter, you could say that we're left alone with the broken egg. We're left alone with the dead possibilities <laughs> and broken promises. The, the realization that the miracle is monstrous. Zerozo and Daxos has this line in the Dance with Dragons. When your dragons were small, they were a wonder. Grown, they are death and devastation. A flaming sword above the world. A flaming sword above the world, which sounds a lot like the Red Comet, <laughs> which, with which the dragons are associated. So you, you, you get the sense that like this is... This is the come down from the high of Danny Ten. This is crashing back to Earth. This is the dragons are once again stone, hence the name of the island. And the dream of bringing them to life here on Dragonstone is framed not with wonder but with horror, as, as we're going to see when we get to a storm of swords. So, like Danny Ten was the exception. Danny Ten was the moment in which humanity could break through the firmament and, and make something magical. And this is the rule where you try to do that and you can't. Danny grasped a star. And Dragonstone is the overreaching fall. Dragonstone is where mere mortals are cowering before the god's eye in the sky. That's, I don't think I can really top that at all, man. That's that's brilliant stuff. You know, I the, the only thing I was thinking about was um, I really love the point about the comparison between Dragonstone and, and Winterfell because it's not something that I'd seen before, but it, it makes a lot of sense. You know, consider that Winterfell has the hot springs that are in the middle of this kind of cold castle, whereas Dragonstone is compared to this very hot castle. But what happens in this chapter? But the White Raven shows up announcing the start of winter here. So you have that kind of duality that's existing in these two castles here. So I think George does some interesting things with colors. You elucidated upon a lot earlier, which is excellent. But he also does some interesting things with temperature too and talking about how there's a temperature contrast between what is being experienced by those in the castles themselves versus other things versus the exterior, the nature, the nature and man-made stuff is kind of all coming together to form this interesting temperature contrast and comparison between the two castles, which I think is really, really good. And I think it's really excellent too that we have Danny bringing stone dragons to life and yet we're back here with these stone dragons too. And boy, is that going to become a plot point come a storm of swords as Melisarin starts talking about birthing the stone dragons. Give me the boy, give me the boy and I will bring to you these stone dragons. These stone dragons become life again. Like that's it's it's horrifying, but yet at the same time, you can see all that set up being integrated right here in this Clash of Kings prologue chapter, which makes it such a fascinating chapter too. But yet, despite all that architecture, despite all of the brilliance that George integrates into describing architecture, and you know, George does a really good job of doing that in Bran's second chapter in A Game of Thrones of Winterfell's architecture as he's hopping through these different places. Again, this chapter opens with Crescent standing between two gargoyles and then turning and finding that's a terrible, terrible comparison. But turning and finding someone else made of stone, partially made of stone. <laughs> well, uh, Littlefinger alluded to someone comparing Shireen to Gargoyle, so we shouldn't be like that, us all. Poor Shireen. <laughs> but yeah, it's interesting. Then Shireen and Patchface shows up. And I think it, it's an interesting choice to introduce the two most powerless members of Team Dragonstone before Stannis, or Selyse, or Davos, or Melisandre, for that matter. We start with Shireen and Patchface. And both of them are just so much smaller than these big picture things going on around them and they feel so kind of uh, powerless and scared and that works because so does Crescent. 
and both of them only remind Crescent of his failure. Shireen is the saddest child he'd ever known, and Crescent doesn't know if Patchface is even happy to have been spared. So this enhances the feeling Crescent has that his defenses are low against someone like Melisandre or against the Comet, that the gains of his world, everything he's worked on, are really meager compared to the growing prominence of magic and the onset of autumn, which, as you say, is the sense of kind of doom settling over Dragonstone and sense of cold contrasting with the fire. Crescent has this line, an ugly little girl and a sad fool and a maester makes three. Now there is a tale to make men weep. And this, again, the sense of autumn said again of summer dying, I think, is so crucial to this chapter. It goes hand in hand with Robert's death and the overall sense of uh, illusions fading over the course of the first book. There's this uh, line, the quote from the, the play Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead that I'm going to be uh, referencing a couple times next week when we get the Stannis. The quote is, autumnal, nothing to do with leaves. It is to do with a certain brownness at the edges of the day. Brown is creeping up on us. Take my word for it. And that's the sensation I get from this chapter. And Shireen, within that, is like the last fragile, flickering ray of light. She's like the last hope for any of these people, or for any of this storyline. She's the one who, is, who still has innocence. Like, she greets the Herald of Autumn not with the sense of doom and death, but with childish delight. Shireen gave a cry of delight. The child's mouth caped open. It talks! And this is such a contrast with her cynical father. Because, of course, when Stannis was a child, he also greeted the sight of a bird with, with uh, delight and joy. His, his, his pet Proudwing, who he healed and tried to take care of, but then was convinced to abandon because he couldn't keep up with Robert. It just wasn't strong enough. So Shireen is like Stannis's shriveled little soul. Shireen is like the side of Stannis that still cares about Proudwing and, and hasn't given up that, that part of him. And while Stannis' atheism leads him to dismiss the reality of Melisandre's god and think of her as just basically an extremely pretentious battle mage, <laughs> Shireen accurately senses the dark side of the fairy tales coming back to life that Crescent is trying to ignore. I had bad dreams, Shireen told him, about the dragons. They were coming to eat me. What about the thing in the sky? Dalla and Matrice were talking by the well, and Dalla said she heard the Red Woman tell Mother that it was dragon's breath. If the dragons are breathing, doesn't that mean they are coming to life? In this way, Shireen is forcing Crescent to not just like, think aside to himself. He has to actively make the case for his world. He has to push back on Melisandre via Shireen. The thing, in the, the thing in the sky is a comet, sweet child. A star with a tail lost in the heavens. It will be gone soon enough, never to be seen again in our lifetimes. Watch and see. And he's got the whole lecture about the dragon architecture of Dragonstone from the Valyrians, as you were saying, that, that great irony of, in one breath, he tells her the dragons are there to make the castle more fearsome. In the next, he tells her there's nothing to fear. <laughs> now, of course, Crescent does not realize that Melisandre wants to make his wistful fantasies of the gargoyle of the spring into life come true. But that little slippage where he admits the fear is there but then tries to deny it, that it reflects how Crescent's argument is beginning to fail, as with Lewin and Bran, that even the kids are starting to be able to poke holes in what you're saying, and that he's losing his grip on multiple generations of Baratheons, not just Stannis, but, but, but Shireen. And you, you, again, Shireen represents this kind of innocence from which her father has fallen. Do you think that's a fair characterization of her? I think it's an extremely fair characterization of Shireen. I think, and I love the point you're making about her being that kind of bright light in this really dark chapter and that she's she's so sweet and amazing and awesome. And you want to reach out to her and embrace her as your own daughter, which makes again her coming burning in the, in the winds of winter or a dream of spring that much more horrifying. Although the problem with, with Stannis is that he is all of these outside elements that have beaten him down to this place that he's not Shireen Baratheon. And he's he has to push himself aside from, from Proudwing and give up his kind of youthful, maybe not innocence, but at least his youthful fun personality, which again was not all that fun, even as Crescent <laughs> makes clear in this chapter. But at the same time, you know, it's, it's interesting that when Cherie is introduced, we have the character of Patchface introduced too. And, and Patchface is fascinating 
and, and horrifying for for a lot of different ways. But one of the things I think is the most fascinating about him is that he has a almost a kind of represents something of Stannis as well. He like has a bit of his personality in that as well. Like he could have been something else, and yet he arrives and he is just totally changed and devoid of any humor and and things like that. That's a great comparison for sure. As Patchface is kind of this this falling from grace and the way Stannis has fallen from grace and. He's the path not taken that, oh, if only Patchface had been what he was, Stannis could have laughed and smiled and met a whole different person. But, you know, that <laughs> path was not taken. Overall, though, I think Patchface is meant as a funhouse mirror take on Melisandre. He, too, comes from over the narrow sea. He, too, can sing in multiple languages, as Melisandre will do in Davos 1. He, too, is a constant companion to his Baratheon, even while giving everyone else the creeps. And, of course, he, too, is a prophet. As we will see mm. over the course of the series, that Patchface's weird random asides are not, in fact, weird random asides. That he is predicting a lot of major events in the series, from the Battle of Blackwater to the Red Wedding to potentially some stuff going on at Hardhome. And we can argue about where those powers come from, and we will talk about it at the end of this episode. Mm. But the point, I think, in terms of this overall dynamic between the secular and the sorceress and how these characters are responding to it, the point is that Patchface's third eye opening has not empowered him. It ruined his life. Patchface rose from the dead to speak for the divine. He's a walking, talking miracle. But unlike Melisandre, there's no pretense of mastery or even interpretation on his part. The person who might have taught Stannis to smile is just gone, hollowed out by the dreams dancing behind his eyes. He's replaced by Mel, who of course just keeps Stannis grimacing. And of course, the other thing about Patchface is he's, he's not just an example of Lovecraftian craziness. He's also like the classic fool who speaks coded truth to power in the <laughs> way like the fool in King Lear does. But with the, the Lovecraftian twist where Patchface doesn't even seem to be aware that that's what he's doing. He's just this, this vessel for the truth that is speaking through him. And that I think that bizarre combination of archetypes produces this singular tone with Patchface that I love. And only crops up again in the series with Cold Hands, I think. In both cases, Patchface and Cold Hands, you have these unabashedly silly elements captured by their respective names. Like, it's hard to take you seriously when you're named Cold Hands or Patchface, <laughs> you know? So they exist in part to puncture the pretensions around them. Like Stannis' story and Bran's story could both get really solemn and really self-serious. It helps to have a character named Patchface or Cold Hands around. And at a deeper level, though, I think, you know, Melisandre takes herself so seriously. And I think it's in part to avoid being a Patchface. It's, it's part to avoid being seen as just a wandering, random, rambling, crazy person just there to be pitied and feared and not to be taken seriously. And similarly, Stannis projects anger and strength all the time because he feels like Shireen. He feels vulnerable and lonely and that no one's ever going to like him or take him seriously. Really, it's, the central characters in this storyline are all putting up a front. Right? They're all constantly terrified that someone will pierce the veil and see them for who they really are. Stannis has to project, I'm the king! And Davos has to project, I'm a knight! And Melisandre projects a whole lot of things. <laughs> and at some level, this is because they just can't deal with the reality of being stuck on this shitty island and no one caring about their years of service to Robert, or their decades of slavery to R'hllor, or the fingers they traded for a future. Just no one cares. And, and Davos knows that he's still a smuggler from Flea Bottom down deep, and I think Stannis and Melisandre know deep down, really, that they're Shireen and Patchface, that they're just a, a lonely child and the prophet that no one else takes seriously. But like Cold Hands, Patchface is also drawn from horror. There's really deep skin-crawling elements about both of those characters, the more you think about them and where their powers come from, and just what they say about how magic works in this universe. And Patchface really embodies the folly of Stannis and Melisandre meddling in powers they cannot understand. Like, they believe that magic will empower them. That's something they both pretty strongly believe. And his example demonstrates otherwise. Like, in other words, if 
if like the pathetic side of Patchface, the side that just makes you pity him, if that represents how Stannis and Melisandre secretly see themselves deep down, the scary side of Patchface represents how far they will go and how much they will give up in order to escape that self-image. You know, this this happened to Patchface. He didn't choose this. And to do so, as Stannis and Melisandre do, is to earn that fool's crown. That's so brilliant, man. That's that's awesome. Like, I, you know, I, I love – so, I mean, one of the things I think is really cool about that whole thing about how, you know, that silly side of Patchface is how, you know, they see the Melisandre and Stannis see themselves with that scary side of him, how far they will go and how much they will give up in order to escape that self-image. What is that song that that Patchface is singing in this chapter? The shadows come to dance, my lord, dance, my lord, dance, my lord. The shadows come to stay, my lord, stay, my lord, stay, my lord. And what does Melisandre do in Davos' second chapter in A Clash of Kings but brings shadows into the world to make a brutal, absolutely justifiable killing of Stephen Lee <laughs> Brathian? But, you know, even even taking aside the, the just side of, of whether it was just or not to, to kill Renly Brathian in that moment – there is a real sense of horror in Catelyn's fourth chapter in A Clash of Kings, which really makes like that whole scene is just kind of skin crawling. How like the sh- the, the the candles kind of flicker, and she sees a shadow kind of rise up and stab him. And Renly's only word is "cold." That's his final final word, and that's it's intended to invoke this really kind of dark, scary side of magic, which is what Melisandre is bringing into it. At the same time, though, like we talked about before, even though she's she's able to touch or to reach out and grasp the power that she can grasp, she doesn't fully understand it. She's never going to fully understand it. I think in her final chapter or final moments where she's burning Shireen or whatever her final moments are, I think it's going to be her oh moment from Quentin's final chapter in A Dance with Dragons, that realization that the magic she has, she has real magic, she has the magic inside of her. But at the same time, what she's doing and utilizing the magic is bringing horror into the world. And she's willing to do that because she doesn't want to be silly. She doesn't want to be the type of person that people don't take seriously. That's why she brings all these affects into her demeanor. She speaks with this super deep voice, as Crescent talks about in the prologue. She mocks, she projects, she mocks Crescent and projects that mockery on him later in the chapter because she could very well have the same mockery put on her by the various lords and knights standing around her. But she has to put that front on, same as Stannis does, the same as Davos does. The only person who really seems to be in touch with himself is Crescent, and he dies at the end of this chapter. Very sad. <laughs> True that. The dynamic there reminds me of uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, a great book which is adapted into a wonderful series. It's on Netflix. I highly recommend it if you haven't checked it out. And it's it's about uh, people in England, this alternate universe of England dealing with the return of magic. And one of the main characters, Mr. Norrell, is a very stuffy, self-important magician who uh, doesn't, you know, is, is very isolated and doesn't really want to show off. But what really irks him and gets him to practice his magic is uh, the ill reputation magic has because of, like, if, you know, charlatans and street performers and people who are just trying to rip people off. And that's the sense I get with Melisandre and Patchface, that she's working so hard not to be seen as just a street performer, as someone who's going to, like, play three-card Monty and pretend they're magic. Like, that's, that's the <laughs> reputation Melisandre is working really hard to avoid here. Crescent moves on from Shireen and Patchface when Pylos informs him that Davos returned to inform Stannis about what went down with the Stormlords. Crescent climbs the, the, the tower and encounters Davos. Now, Sir Davos Seaworth, later uh, Hand of the King and Lord of the Rainwood and Admiral of the Narrow Sea, <laughs> is, of course, one of the most compelling, relatable, and vital characters in the series. No one needs me to tell them that. Unlike Stannis, pretty much everybody loves Davos. <laughs> and to give the Onion Knight his proper due, we're going to save the lion's share of our thoughts on him for when he becomes a POV in his own right a little later on in the book. But 
He does get one hell of an introduction here, and it's essential to this chapter's primary task, which of course is establishing the character of his king, Stannis Baratheon. For me, the Siege of Storm's End is the single most iconic and memorable part of A Song of Ice and Fire's backstory. It represents just a phenomenal achievement of leadership on the part of young Stannis. This is the origin story of arguably the preeminent military mind of his generation. While he lacks the kind of generous, cheerful charisma that his brothers possess, and he is all <laughs> too aware of that, as we'll see uh, next week in the second part of this chapter, Stannis does have exactly the forceful presence you need to hold a starving garrison together under siege. It's what Asha describes in A Dance with Dragons as, quote, power in his stare, an iron ferocity that told Asha this man would never, ever turn back from his course. Yeah, thank you for providing me the opportunity to talk about Stannis as a military commander, because that is one of my like kind of hobby horses that I will ride into the fucking bitter end. So, so I mean, it's, it's really interesting. So you're talking about Asha's observations of Stannis, and she further observes a few other things about about Stannis in A Dance of Dragons. There's a really interesting duality in Stannis as a, as a military commander because, you know, his officers, his lords, his knights, they all doubt him as we see in those Dance with Dragons chapters where they're like, it's getting cold out. It's, it's so cold. We're all going to starve. We're never going to take the walls. But you know who does have faith in Stannis? His men, his, his soldiers have faith in him. Asha says or thinks, Whatever doubts his lords might nurse, the common men seemed to have faith in their king. Stannis had smashed Mance Raider's wildlings at the wall and cleaned Asha and her ironborn out of Deepwood Mott. He was Robert's brother, victor in a famous sea battle off Fair Isle, the man who had held Storm's End all through Robert's rebellion. And he bore a hero's sword, the enchanted blade Lightbringer, whose glow lit up the night. Ah, it's just such a lovely passage. Can't wait to get that in 2023. You know, something is, uh, I was thinking about is, about this prologue itself is, you know, why? how did – how is it possible that, Stan- that Storm's End held out for a year and, you know, just didn't toss Stannis over the battlements and surrender him to the Tyrells and Red Wines and, you know, they can get a, f- a meal out of it. It's not like these common soldiers really have anything going for them besides the fact that they're in Storm's End. They could easily, like, toss up this guy. You know, think about how Asha is talking about and thinking about Stannis and how Stannis has the faith and respect – I wrote faith and respect in Stannis in the notes. It's the faith and respect among the common soldiers here. Consider that Robert made it back down to Storm's End to rally the Stormlanders after he was in the Vale, and then he marched out of the Stormlands with a host at his back. You know, I was thinking about the composition of what Robert's army probably looked like in Robert's Rebellion, and I have to imagine it was probably a lot of nobles, a lot of knights and lords and people that would typically make up one of Robert's armies that was so glorious and dashing in these battles that he fought across the Stormlands and Riverlands. But what was left over? What what did Stannis have as his garrison? You know, Probably the common men that he's ending up leading in a dance of dragons that have the faith and respect in him. And, you know, Renly recounts later in A Clash of Kings how there was only one knight, how there's how there are four knights, Sir Gowan Wild is named as one of them. They attempted to desert Stannis, but they were caught. So the nobles were the ones who were who tried to desert, but not the common men, because Stannis is kind of a step up from his noble peers. He endures the sufferings and hardships that his same men endure. The other thing I was thinking too, and this comes from a conversation we were having on our new Slack channel for those for our high lords and ladies, is that uh, one of our, our our folks there, Lord Lord Jake, assistant to the Hand of the King, was talking about why these soldiers might have stayed with Stannis. And something that kind of struck me is that, you know, the the men who are fighting along with Stannis, these common soldiers, they're the kind of guys that, you know, when winter comes and we have years long winter that is that is going on, they don't have the comforts of a castle and 
plenty of food stores, the ability to impress the labor and force people to give up their food because they have the sword and the ability to wield it. They're the people that have to endure the elements, that have to you know, endure starvation. So these guys being along with Stannis at Storm's End, holding out for siege under for a full year, subsisting on rats and radishes and boot leather, that's kind of like the long night or something like a long-term winter in Westeros. So I think that kind of makes a lot of sense. You know, Come to think of it, you know, the more I think about Stannis and Winter and all these sorts of things, it reminds me of a certain Lord Stark when everyone comes to his table in the north, from the highest lords to the smallest of small folk. Everyone who worked for him. Who is, who is that lord I'm thinking of here? Uh, clearly, it's Tywin Lannister, Jeff. I think that's who mm-hmm. you're describing. Absolutely. Stannis has a, a ton in common with Ned, which is something we're going to be touching on next next week. And I think you could almost describe Stannis as a Stark at heart. That temperamentally, in terms of his model of justice, he's destined not for Storm's End nor the Iron Throne. Uh, but for the North, and much more on that as we go, as it's a key plank in my overall argument about Stannis. But while Stannis and Ned do have quite a bit in common, Ned is also kindler and, and gentler and, and unlikely to embrace the kind of philosophy that, that Stannis embraces. I think, though, you can see in the backstory of the Siege of Storm's End, and you can see in George giving us that right before we meet Stannis, that far from being just a sour, entitled prick who just wants the crown because and spits out whatever justification he needs <laughs> to make that happen— Stannis does have a genuine philosophy of justice that the author takes time to establish in his backstory with Davos, and it's a complex one worthy of examination and reflection rather than just knee-jerk dismissal, given how it ends. And this is how you can tell that unlike the hollow suit Renly, he knew how to dress and he knew how to smile and he knew how to bathe and somehow this put the notion in his head that he was fit to be king, George intends on keeping Stannis around and holding his feet to the fire to see where his beliefs lead him. And he Stannis is among the more precisely executed characters in the series and that it's absolutely essential that every story beat land exactly where it does to keep him from veering too far in any one direction. For example, it is important that we are told the story of Davos's onions and fingers right before meeting Stannis because you really need this context to make sense of the one true king as something more than a drag at parties, which is basically how <laughs> Renly seems to think about him. Like so many in his generation, Robert's rebellion made Stannis the person he is today. His bluntness, his meritocratic ideals, his fondness for hard truths, his lack of material attachments, willingness to stand his ground no matter what, being, quote, utterly without mercy, all of it was forged in the steel crucible of the siege. His ideology was born when he knighted Davos with one hand while calling for a cleaver with the other. Good service for Stannis is what makes the world work. Valar de Hyrus could be his personal motto. And not only did he raise Davos up, but he keeps him in his councils and deploys him as his envoy to the nobles and small folk alike. Damn the former snobbery. Great or small, we must do our duty. And if no one else, especially Robert, is going to cut through corruption to make that a reality in his fa- in this fallen world, he will. All the great political and philosophical themes of A Clash of Kings, from Varus's riddle a couple chapters from now, to Corn Halfhand sacrificing all of his men, including himself, for the greater good as the book draws to a close, it all builds from this opening salvo shot forth from the backstory. Stannis' declaration at the age of 18 that, like Judge Dredd before him, he is the law. And there is... This undeniable appeal to this worldview as A Clash of Kings opens, because we're coming off a book exposing the status quo in the capital as this hopelessly corrupted cesspool that devoured whole the one man within it who was loyal to the realm. By the end of A Game of Thrones, the Red Keep seems desperately in need of a top-to-bottom shakeup. Hell, even the Lannister men know that as we saw in Tyrion 9, and they're in charge now. You got Robert rotting from the inside out long before the boar tore him open, the Lannisters leading a coup from within and killing anyone who gets in their way, Littlefinger smirking his way through staggering corruption and deceit, 
Picel's just sheer infuriating venality. The list goes on and on. I mean, not for nothing does George have Ned increasingly think of the Middle Baratheon, as you were saying, not the youngest, as his fallback option to set things to rights, because Stannis is the one radical enough to use the power of the monarchy to tear the government up by the roots in one fell swoop and put honest men in charge. As you say, it's not really the small folk who have a problem with Stannis. They don't like him any more than they like anybody else in particular, but they don't really have a problem with him it's the nobles who have a problem with him and it's because he says stuff like would that all the lords of westeros had but a single neck <laughs> and th- there's part of that is just awesome and badass and you just imagine stannis just striding into king's landing at the end of the first book and saying all of you on the spikes and it, that, that's kind of great from what we saw in book one and how horrible all those people were and what they did to ned stark but problem is that stannis just does not know when to stop if you follow that road far enough there's just not going to be anyone left to rule And the best in Stannis is that his beliefs lead him to some inspiringly forward-thinking conclusions, such as not only raising Davos up, but as I said, bringing him into his councils as this counterpoint to the born and bred nobility. The worst in Stannis, however, is that humanity is just never going to be good enough for that model of justice to work, himself included. So if he's not restrained, he's going to burn the entire world down in his zeal to set it to rights. That's why you get that great line from Varys. There is no creature on earth half so terrifying as a truly just man. It's not that Stannis is a villain so much as what makes him a hero also makes him terrifying, if you know what I mean. Like, Robert wouldn't have made a peasant his hand, right? Robert would never have done that. He would never have thought that why would that would be important or to make that step. But, as Edric Storm notes in A Storm of Swords, Robert also would not have cut off Davos' fingers. So you have this duality. You have both. The man who makes Davos' hand is the same man who sets his previous hand on fire. So Stannis is, is, is made, and we're going to talk a ton more about this next week, but you see it in Davos' backstory. Stannis is made to teeter on the edge between hero and villain, true king and mad king, and the motivations of one side are inextricable from those of the other. As Melisandre describes Davos later in this book, a gray man, belonging to neither dark nor light, but partaking of both. And as Stannis himself says in that chapter, a good act does not wash out the bad, nor a bad act the good. Each should have its own reward. In the end, as a huge Stannis fan, as you people may have picked <laughs> up on by now, I think the fact that he spends so much time staring into the abyss lends a just a peerless catharsis to the moments he pulls back. When Stannis does something right or does something humane, it just it just stands out so strongly because of all the time he just spends complaining. <laughs> that the better angels of his nature, the proud wing side of him, that it never truly died. For me, that's what transforms the inevitable endpoint of his arc from just wretchedness, just an asshole getting hit by a bus, as Stephen Atwell said to real tragedy. Oh, man, that's that's so good. I mean, I think, you know, I was thinking about Stance and, and archetypes that are within the Song of Ice and Fire as I was reading your notes uh, earlier today. And, and something that struck me is that Stance would be great as a Craig and Stark-like character kind of rolling in and being like a hand for like a fortnight, just executing all these people and taking out all of the corruption in King's Landing and then just rolling back to Dragonstone to spend the rest <laughs> of his days or rolling back to Winterfell in the form of Craig and Stark. But that's the point of Stannis is that he's not going to be the guy that rolls on. As Asha had pointed out earlier in that quote, an iron ferocity that told Asha that this man would never, ever turn back from his course. Like that's who Stannis is. He's not going to be the guy that's going to come to an end point and be like, okay, I've done my part. Now it's time to roll back. I've done all the justice that I could do in this realm. Time to put the the realm in the hands of someone who, you know, probably would, would do a good job of balancing kind of justice and mercy on one hand. You know, I, I think that Stannis gets an overall reputation as being this totally merciless character, something that Catelyn is going to bring up specifically in, in some of her midpoint chapters in A Clash of Kings. And, and that reputation is very much unearned, especially given things like, you know, 
Stannis forgives these lords who had once sworn to Renly, not for any merciful reasons, but because for a pragmatic reason that he needs them for battle. But at the same time, it's the same it's the same end, just the the motivation for for doing that is, is a little bit different than a character like Ned Stark or Robert Baratheon would do. You know, Robert was famous, extraordinarily famous for forgiving his enemies. You know, they had Lords Grandison and Fell who had fought against Robert with the Targaryens, that as soon as he defeats them in battle, he feasts them and brings them to his side, and then they fought, fight alongside of him when he fights against the Tyrells in the Stormlands. You know, Stannis is more like, he's the guy that's like, wait a minute, I'm doing the same exact thing, but I'm not getting the credit that Robert's getting throughout his entire story, as he, as he points out. Robert could piss into a cup and men would praise the vintage. I offer them clean, clear water and men squinted suspicion, wondering, like, what does this taste so funny? Like, that's who Stannis is and that's really, really interesting and good. Like, a lot of the ends are the same as Robert's, but he's never going to have the same reputation that Robert has. And part of that is because his personality. I mean, we will. T- I'm, 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 I'm trying not to preempt too much what we'll talk about <laughs> next week, but it's, it's, it's so hard not to, not to get all wrapped up in Stannis. But yes, he is the law. And the law says that he's the king. He's going to push that claim beyond the point of reason, as Crescent is going to point out here in this chapter. I think you make a great point that Stannis is effective in quick bursts under a lot of supervision. Like, if you use him very effectively as, as the bad cop, he could be really indispensable, actually. But the problem is, the tragedy, as we'll get into more next week, is that Robert never did that. So Stannis was left on his own, and Stannis on his own, while he has a lot of admirable features, just ultimately can't be left in charge. Uh, but as you say, we're getting to a lot of that next week. That's just all kind of the, the setup we see for it here. Closing out our depth section and moving on to a foreshadowing and groundwork for this portion of the chapter. Absolutely. So, to kind of take veer away from Stannis in a little bit here, we get our first mention of Beric Dondarrion in the book from Davos as he rattles off the Stormlords to Crescent. You know, Beric doesn't appear, but he is a constant presence for all the people who are searching for him, all the rumors that Arya hears about him in the Riverlands. And not only does this lend him a mystique prior to his reappearance in Storm in that excellent Arya chapter, but it establishes his legend as a fearless escape artist that is then subverted by the reveal that Thoros, Thoros has been literally bringing Beric back from the dead. And I think it's fascinating in this chapter that Davos is recounting to Crescent, like, yeah, well, Beric Dondarrion, like, he, he might be dead. He, he could be dead. He is dead. We know, I've heard all these different stories about him. Like, that is all set to, intended to set the stage for Beric Dondarrion. And I think it's, you know, one of, one of the, the beauties of George's writing is that he sets this aura of mystery around Beric Dondarrion, who, I don't, I don't know, I don't know if this is fair or not, but he is kind of a minor character. Like, he's not a point of view character. He's at least secondary, if, if not a minor character. But yet we're all kind of like, hey, what's going on with Beric? Why are all these stories like popping up about him? Why is there this aura of mystery about him? Is he actually dead? Is he not dead? Oh, he is dead. Kind of. He is mostly dead. Mostly dead. He is dead. But he's back. You know, it's, it's really cool. I, I think that George does this for a character like Beric as well as other characters we'll explore later in the story. Yeah, this is one of George's best long cons in terms of a setup and subversion. All through A Clash of Kings, we're hearing Beric talked about is this fearless will-of-the-wisp striking guerrilla-style at Lannister forces. But all the build-up suggests that what Beric is... All the build-up suggests that Beric is just really talented and a really good guerrilla fighter. And everything we hear about Thoros of Mir up to the point of re-meeting him in Arya's Chapters and Storm suggests that he's a, he's a fraud and a drunk and was just Robert's drinking buddy. So you have no real sense that the magic is real until you actually meet Beric and Thoros at the, at the Hollow Hill. So I just – I love that. We're going to be keeping an eye on that going forward. 
Now, George does revisit this chapter, I think, in multiple interesting ways for another prologue later on, the prologue to A Feast for Crows. That citadel old town among citadel novices, you have the citadel connection, They're, they also are talking about dragons and omens in the secular world versus the supernatural world. And you even have a mention of Crescent in passing, that old Archmaster Walgrave, who's gone senile, seems to think his assistant Pate is Crescent and calls him Crescent at one point. So they, 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 they seem to have been friends. And this is the, the alternating pattern that many have noted with the prologues in The Song of Ice and Fire. The odd-numbered books, A Game of Thrones, A Storm of Swords, A Dance of Dragons, have prologues set north of the wall, dealing with the watch-wildling-white walker dynamic. Whereas the even-numbered books, A Clash of Kings and A Feast for Crows, so far, have prologues set south of the wall among maesters dealing with more eastern magical influences. So the question is, will the Winds of Winter keep this pattern going or break it? What do you think, Jeff? Oh, man. You know, it's... <sighs> I love the pattern. You know, I, there was a, I remember listening to an old Boiled Leather Audio Hour episode from like 2012 when I was first getting into podcasts. And there was this idea that the Winds of Winter prologue would be the the, the maester who is north of the wall uh, at Hardhome. Apparently, there's a maester with uh, Cotter Pike who's up there. And I thought that would be really interesting too. But of course, George in 2014 kind of dispelled that by saying that the prologue would feature, well, excuse me, that Jane Westerling would appear in the Winds of Winter prologue. So, this is going to be a prologue that's going to be set in the south of of the wall, south obviously in the Riverlands or the Westerlands, depending on where George ends up putting the prologue itself. Will there be a maester for this prologue dealing with an Eastern magical influence? I, you know, I'm, I'm going to go on. I'm going to say something very controversial here and say that it will not be a maester dealing with Eastern magical influences. Although I think it may be a maester now for reasons that I'll probably end up talking about later down the road, but dealing with a northern magical influence, that is namely the direwolves and the major direwolf being Nymeria and her wolf pack that is now savaging the Riverlands. I think we're just going to be a major player in that Winds of Winter prologue. What about you, man? Do you think it's going to be an Eastern magic that's coming up here or anything like that? I'm with you. Since Jane Westerling's involved, there's really no Eastern magical influences at work there other than R'hllor being involved in Stoneheart's resurrection. So maybe if those characters are explicitly involved in talking about R'hllor in some capacity. Maybe that's the the element of Eastern magic that gets into the Winds of Winter prologue. But I agree with you completely that the wolves might be the magical influence there instead, especially with the title like The Winds of Winter. Nothing speaks to the Winds of Winter like the howling of wolf voices, right? So it would be perfect to start off the book with that. Absolutely, man. That's going to be so exciting to read that. I, I've, I've been hoping that George will release that as, as a prologue, as a sample chapter, since we, we have to have some idea that it's hopefully done at this point. But And he has released in a Dance with Dragons prologue back in the day, but that, that's getting beyond the, the point at this point. Okay. So, a little bit more in terms of foreshadowing, um, in terms of groundwork, let's say, because this, is, this isn't this foreshadowing. This has been a question that a lot of people have had, which is like, why does why did Davos go to Stannis Baratheon? Why did he bring the onions and the, and the salt fish there? Well, George actually explicitly revealed why Davos came to Stannis at Storm's End in a 2012 interview with Shy.com. And Shy.com, if you guys don't know, it's Spain's premier Song of Ice and Fire site in the same way that Westeros.org, Reddit.com slash r slash asoaf are kind of english-speaking premier sites um in that interview george revealed why davos came to storm's end where the question was during robert's rebellion what brought a simple smug a simple smuggler like davos to take sides in the war by helping stannis and the starving garrison at storm's end and george apparently laughed at this and says because he had onions and so he thought to himself where can I sell these at the best price? If I take them to King's Landing, yeah, they'll pay me the price of onions at probably fair market value, right? But I take them to people dying of hunger, and they'd certainly pay me better. And, you know, I, George is laughing there, but I think there's um, not, not there's a hitting being here, but in terms of like Storms and paying him better, 
Yeah, it really did pay Davos a lot better. Namely that he got a a knighthood, he got a surname, he got a small keep in the Rainwood, but she became got a lordship and became Hand of the King. So yeah, Stannis did pay Davos a lot better than King's Landing would have. He paid him better, but he also took a price that Davos never would have imagined. I'm sure he had no idea sailing into Storm's End that the person I'm, I'm f- feeding and saving is going to cut off part of my fingers. And Davos, of course, says he was fine with it, as you say. He has four fewer fingernails to clean. But uh, yeah, I think that that also uh, binds him to Stannis in kind of this, this darker way. And as, as Salador San will say to Davos in A Dance with Dragons, he will kill you with these honors, old friends. He will kill you. So that, that gets into the, the ambiguity of Stannis that we'll be talking a lot more going for it. But yeah, I'm glad that, that George confirmed that. And I like that idea that Davos was being this interesting mix of heroic and cynical, mm-hmm. which, I, which I think speaks to his character very well. So I like that a lot. And finally, probably the most obvious bit of foreshadowing in this chapter on reread is, is Patchface's prophetic rhyme. The shadows come to dance, my lord, dance, my dance, lord, my dance, lord, my dance, my lord. <laughs> and obviously, of course, that foreshadows Melisandre's shadow babies. But what I think is fascinating to me is the idea that the shadows come to stay, my lord, which is not what the shadow babies do, actually. Like, they, hmm. from what we can tell, they vanish into the ether, as we saw in season two of the show after they're done. There's no indication that those two shadow babies are still kicking around down in the stormlands somewhere. So what Patchface, I think, is speaking to is not literal, but more metaphorical. It's the shadow on Stannis's soul. The shadow that Davos describes as crossing Stannis' face when he's giving the order to kill Courtney Penrose. Like, that's the shadow that came to stay, not the shadow babies. And the shadow babies just stand in, I think, for that emotional shadow, so to speak. Uh, yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think that's I, – I love the metaphorical interpretation of the shadows come to stay, my lord, and that they come to stay on Stannis specifically because, you know, it's it's Davos mentions in his second chapter how kind of worn down and – older Stannis seems as a result of, you know, using blood magic or sex magic, one of the two. To, <laughs> both. It's both. Sex magic. Sex magic too to bring about the the shadows. But I think it's interesting when we get to a dance with dragons that Melisandre makes that offer to Jon Snow of, you know, I will show you greater pleasures than you could ever imagine. And I believe and I have to I, I should have looked this up before we came on air, but I believe she does reference birthing shadows again at, at Am I am I wrong in that, or is that is that a show only invention from season season five or season six? I think she she brings it up in Storm of Swords. I don't think she brings it up when they get to the Wall, though. I think she's, oh, it's she's Davos. Kind of, yeah, it's Davos. Yeah, she brings it up to Davos. She offers to make a shadow baby of Davos, which I think is fascinating. Who knows what Melisandre was planning to do with that one? Uh, I, would, I would love to know if she was thinking maybe I'll use Davos to kill Joffrey because Stannis's fires are going low. What a what a wild AU that is. That is so, so wild, man. Gosh, so many interesting AUs that we can de- de- develop from just that. Wow. So that, I think that, that transitions really interestingly into Patchface as a character and, and, and what's up with him. You know, I, Patchface is really fucking creepy as well as really <laughs> fucking silly at the same time as we talked mm-hmm. about in, in the depth section. But there is something up with Patchface. As we talked about the shadows come to dance, my lord, dance, my lord, dance, my lord. It, it does. Patchface seems to have some sort of prophetic ability, and and you do kind of wonder where that prophetic ability is coming from. Now, in the backstory itself, Patchface goes down, sinks down with the ship uh, of Lord Stefan's ship, and comes back, and the person who recovers the body believes that he's dead, and then he sits up and coughs out water, and he's never the same after that. Thereafter, you have to imagine that he's uttering these prophetic things, and you have to wonder why he's uttering these prophetic things. Obviously, there has to be some sort of reason behind it. So, what is up with Patchface, Mr. Magic himself, Emmett, 
or at least bringing magic into my life every single week. Well, Jeff, as always, I'm here to an- answer all your questions about magic with, uh, with <laughs> the the unearned arrogance that is my stock and trade. But <laughs> yeah, what's true. up with Patchface is is the interesting question because even if you don't realize he's a prophet, and I certainly didn't realize that on my own until I you know read message boards telling me that he was predicting stuff and went back and realized it. There's something clearly demands explanation with that backstory where he he spent some days in the sea and came up cold but is is, is still alive. And you have to imagine, like, again, he's not interpreting these prophecies like Melisandre. You have to imagine that he's just seeing them. They're just flashing in front of his eyes, and he's describing what he sees. And so you have the question of, yeah, where does this ability come from? Why is he able to, to tap into this? And I, there's, there are a number of explanations have put, for, put forward, some more tinfoil than others. I think, as far as I can tell, there are two main schools of thought, and two schools of thought that at least partially convince me. The first one is that Patchface has Targaryen blood in him, or Valyrian blood in him. We have seen Dragon Dreams as this consistent thing within House Targaryen of, of prophetic glimpses of the future. You have that with, uh, young, was, was it uh, Daenerys was the one Valyrian who had the dreams about the, the doom? Danes. Danes. Danes Targaryen had the dreams of the doom of Valyria that led House Targaryen to escape to Dragonstone. And you have uh, numerous other characters within the family, including Daenerys, who has those kinds of dreams. So maybe Patchface is just another one of those. We know he came from Essos, and even beyond just all the, the Valyrian blood that remains kicking around in Essos, you have the, the specific exiled branch. You have a couple exiled branches of House Targaryen. One, of course, is the Blackfires, although as we'll get into much later down the road, I think the scion of House Blackfire is Young Griff. Mm-hmm. But you have this, this other branch of Targaryens, the, the Bright Flames, the Aryan Bright Flame, one of the worst of Targaryens. He, he, was, he went into exile, and he had a son there named Magor. Just a wonderful sign. <laughs> the Great Council of 233 passed over Magor Bright Flame in favor of Egan V. But we don't know anything else about that, about what happened to House Brightflame after that, what happened to Magor. So maybe Patchface is Magor Brightflame's son. And that's why he was in Essos, and that's why we have these dreams. So you have the connection to Shireen and her dragon dreams. Maybe we're supposed to see those as a parallel, because Shireen and Patchface were always seen together. Maybe it's just, it's just hey, Shireen probably has dragon dreams because she's like one-eighth Targaryen. Maybe, maybe that's also the reason Patchface has these visions. And uh, I just love the the perfect irony, right, of... You know, Stefan went to Essos to find a Valyrian-blooded bride for Rhaegar. That's why he was there. And he failed to do that. He came home without a bride, but he did come home with Patchface. So the great irony of him coming home with someone who actually did have Valyrian blood, but he just didn't know it. And he didn't realize that he was technically successful in his voyage. I just, I love that idea. And I love the idea that if Patchface is part Targaryen, he's this early echo of both young Griff and Danny, Like the Targaryen claimant returned to Westeros, but in the most like cynical, deconstructed way possible where he doesn't even know he's a Targaryen and isn't in charge of anything and is just like victim to this genetic connection. Again, it's, it's the magical world has not empowered Patchface. It's destroyed his life. And he's, he's got that crown he wears, that fool's crown, which we'll be talking about more in terms of foreshadowing next week. But I wonder if that's, if Patchface has Targaryen blood, I wonder if that crown is supposed to connect into that legacy. Like this is what, this is the end result of the Targaryen kings, all that striving for magical power and Patchface is the end game. That, that kind of does have an appeal for me. Again, compared to compared to Danny Ten and the glory of Targaryen power, like Patchface <laughs> is the is the the negative end state. If that if that makes any sense, it, it does make sense. And I, and I was thinking about this too. Like you you were mentioned about that Arian Brightflame's trueborn son went by the name of Magor, and he could have had a son too. Which you know I've I've, I've theorized several years ago now that that could be Varys himself, who could be Magor's son, possibly. But again, that's a little bit out there. You know, it's it's, it's very much out on a limb. 
But George also said, and I believe in a 1998 so spake Martin when he was asked about Arian Brightflame that whether he had any children, he's like, well, he, he could have had a few kids on like the wrong side of the cloth is how he said it out in lists, so to speak. But, you know, it, ultimately, you know, <laughs> that, that could be where where Patchface finds his lineage in, in those bastard kids that, that Arian fathered in, in Essos and in Lys and ending up in Volantis as, as a slave that ends up becoming, you know, a full motley there. But ultimately, though, I think like that, the, the thematic connection, I think, is, is great. The one you're making there about Patchface's crown representing the end state of these dreams of glory and these dreams of prophetic destiny that ultimately it's making a motley and full out of people. I think it's really, really powerful stuff in, in terms of like talking about the thematics of it too. And so I, I'd be curious to see whether there is more to come in Patchface's reveals because he is a character that is still making prophetic utterances even as late as the Dance of Dragons. I, I will be very interested to see what he does in The Winds of Winter because he's still alive at the end of A Dance of Dragons, still at Castle Black. The things he's going to be saying around Melisandre is going to be very, very interesting. But that isn't the only theory about Patchface's identity. And here's the thing too. I don't think that the other side of Patchface's identity is in complete conflict with him potentially being a Targaryen or Valyrian here. Good point. I think these both both can be true, and they could in fact reinforce each other. But if I if I had to pick my my natural tastes, lean me towards this latter explanation. The Targaryen blood stuff, while very interesting and it ties into his visions and where he comes from, doesn't really explain why George is connecting him with the ocean specifically, and why Patchface is always talking about life under the sea. That doesn't really have anything to do with the Targaryens or Valyrian dragon imagery in general. That's something else. And it, his dragon blood would not explain why he was able to survive for multiple days under the ocean and come out seeming like a corpse possibly resurrected or revived. That's got nothing to do with dragon magic either. What it does have something to do with is all the stuff we get in the world of ice and fire about the drowned god and about all mm. the Lovecraftian, Cthulhuian mythos that goes into the drowned god and the deep ones and all these weird underlying elements of the world of ice and fire that were heavily elucidated in, in the world book. And of course, even before that, it was clear that Patchface has, has some Lovecraftian stuff going on with him. So with that as the backdrop, well, that suggests to me that what might have happened to Patchface is he encountered the Drowned God under the waves. This, this, this massive Lovecraftian force that the world, world of Ice and Fire hints is the real Drowned God, not the humanized version that the, the Ironborn are always going on about. This is, this is the real deal, and it's a, it's a giant tentacled kraken monster, <laughs> which I love. But it, that makes sense for why Patchface survived. What else could help him survive under the sea other, other than the divine force that rules things down there? And who, who else could give him visions but, but a literal god? I think it makes it a fascinating parallel and contrast to Aaron Dampere, Aaron Greyjoy, who is the official prophet of the Drowned God, the nominal prophet of the Drowned God. But it's very clear if you look at A Feast for Crows, and even more so The Forsaken, that the voice Aaron hears in his head is his own. And it's just, <laughs> he's just projecting and telling himself things he wants to wants to know and wants to do. And it doesn't help him. Like, uh, I think about like the, the one Simpsons episode where Homer has this trippy vision and meets his, his uh, meets a, a coyote being that's trying to help him. And he's having flashbacks to that that coyote being's dialogue and he's this, Homer's just like help help me find out what to do and the, the the coyote says this is just your memory I can't give you any new information <laughs> uh, and I, I think you can see that going on with Aaron Greyjoy that it's not actually a connection to the divine and I think if Patchface is actually the prophet of the drowned god what George is saying is that this is what being a prophet would actually look like it, Aaron it doesn't look like you just being you know starving yourself and being grim and asking everyone if they've been drowned properly like that's not what actually being a prophet is what's actually being a prophet is insane visions clouding your mind's eye 24 7 until you completely lose any connection to reality 
if you meddle with these realms on purpose, it's going to go very poorly for you. Yeah, so <laughs> that doesn't necessarily to me speak um doesn't make me feel all warm and fuzzy having the the having Patchface be the voice of of the actual drowned god of of the Cthulhu, Cthulhu type figure underneath of the waves. But I I do think I I do favor that interpretation too and you know, I, I'm not as attuned to the magical side of the series necessarily, but I do see Things like Varys talking in the small council meetings in A Storm of Swords about how Krakens are bringing down ships on, on, on the narrow sea. Also have Ariane talking about how in the Winds of Winter sample chapter, her first one, that there are teams of Krakens that are operating now bringing down ships and ship out on the broken arm of Dorne. Like these are things that are speaking to something other power at work underneath of the waves, some sort of horrifying, terrifying power as well. You have the Squishers and a Feast for Crows, this kind of filtered legend in the, in the Crackclaw Point area that says, yeah, that these, these, these creatures are real and have had a part in the background of this world, just like the White Walkers and just like the dragons. Right. And we are many characters in the series for the White Walkers are be like, eh, this is something that happened in legend. Maybe it happened once in, in, in history, but we don't know for sure. And that's tens of thousands of years ago or thousands of years ago. So that's obviously not going to happen. But we do find out in the prologue for A Game of Thrones that the others and the White Walkers are real. We are likely going to be finding out very early in the Winds of Winter that Cthulhu and the great squids that are operating under the seas and the drowned god, they're real too. Things that Aaron Grant Aaron Grant Grant here. Aaron Greyjoy is seeing in the Forsaken, like these these visions that he's seeing of of what Euron is doing and that massive blood sacrifice that Euron is likely planning for the destruction of Old Town. This is all pointing towards a great spiritual horrible power operating out of the waves and could that power have been operating as early as 279 AC when Stefan Baratheon's ship went down and the and the drowned god snatched up Patchface and regurgitated him out onto the land to be this kind of vessel for these cryptic utterances that no one really takes seriously fuck yeah fuck yeah <laughs> well said sir and like I was saying Patchface is just the tip of the iceberg he's just the drowned god is below the waves and Patchface is just like what he allows to appear above the surface and that's that's the overall sense Creston is getting from this chapter of the overall age of wonder and terror that it's just begun. And similarly, our analysis of the prologue to A Clash of Kings has just begun. We hope you enjoyed this first half, and the, the other half is going to be next week. So thanks so much for listening, guys. We hope you enjoy this beginning of our analysis of A Clash of Kings. As you could tell throughout the episode, we're really excited to get into book two. Pleasure doing this with you, as, as always. But it's especially pleasure doing getting into A Clash of Kings in 73 episodes, and it's it's so awesome. So, so thank you for, for doing this with me, and thank you guys for listening as well. As always, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, anywhere you find your podcasts. Please check out our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash where you can get early access to episodes, show notes, Q&A. You get a brand new Slack channel for our two highest tiers. All sorts of fun and exciting things are going on our Patreon these days. 100%. As we were saying earlier, I'm so excited about the, the getting into the Slack and all the new tiers. It's great stuff. Definitely a good revitalizing kickoff to book two. As always, you can follow us at NotacastASOIAF on Twitter, or shoot us an email at NotacastASOIAF at gmail.com. You can find me at Port Quentin. And you can find me at Brennan Beefish on Twitter, Brennan Beefish on, on Reddit, and my website is warsandpolicyadviceandfire.wordpress.com. So, join us next week for The Clash of Kings Prologue Part 2, <laughs> where we finally get to introduce Stannis Baratheon. We'll be doing this entire next week's episode entirely on bent knee as, as <laughs> the king that we are about to praise. 